Hello, humans. My name is Jesse, aka the Bizzle, and welcome to my audio commentary for the Fellowship of the Ring, the first Lord of the Rings movie. This is my second audio commentary that I've released, although I've done a whole bunch of them that I will release at some point. My first commentary was on the science fiction movie Moon from 2009, directed brilliantly by Duncan Jones and acted just as brilliantly by Sam Rockwell. You should definitely check it out. It's a quote-unquote small science fiction movie that really is pretty huge in terms of its uh, commentary about humanity. So this is my second commentary, and I've already done um, commentaries for all three Lord of the Rings movies. Now, I did the commentaries for the extended editions of the Lord of the Rings movies. They're a little bit harder to get a hold of, both digitally and on disc, but I actually started with the last Lord of the Rings movie, Return of the King, of which I think the extended edition is, is so far superior to the theatrical cut that I pretty much only watch the extended edition. And once I did that, I had such a great time and thought it went so well, I said, well, why don't I do all of them and let's just go backwards and see what happens. So I did the last movie first, then the extended edition of Two Towers Second, and finally the extended edition of The Fellowship of the Ring, which is this audio commentary. I don't want to say too much because I want to dive into the movie and, you know, with the extended edition, it's like three and a half hours or something, so I have plenty of time to talk about it. Needless to say, I love the Lord of the Rings movies. They far exceeded my expectations. Um, as you'll hear in this commentary, all the nervousness that I had going into it, that it would suck, pretty much dissipated within two minutes of the movie started, and I became more and more sure of its awesomeness as it goes along. So I'm going to do a countdown into the movie. So basically, depending on the media format in which you're watching the movie, it's not always aligned exactly the same. If you're watching the DVD or Blu-ray or any sort of official purchased version, like on Amazon Instant Video, the New Line Cinema logo is the first thing on screen, and at almost exactly eight seconds, you see the words New Line Cinema. Um, but at the same time, you know, with a little bit of tweaking as you're watching, you'll be able to line it up. You'll know exactly where it's supposed to be aligned, and if it's off by a second or two, it's no big deal. But I'm a stickler for this because I love audio commentaries. I listen to a million of them. And that's why I wanted to do my own, and I've had a blast. So in a second here, I'm going to count it down from three, two, one, and I'm going to say go. And when I say go, you should have your uh, version of the movie uh, queued up to zero hours, zero minutes, zero seconds. And when I say go, you're going to want to hit start with me, and hopefully everything will align correctly. I really had a blast doing this. Hopefully you listened to Bizzlecast 12, where I did... A uh, Lord of the Rings sort of retrospective with my good buddy Adam Tuck, who also loves the movies and the books. Talked a lot about the movies, but especially in connection to the books and what we liked and didn't like. We really pretty much liked everything. There was a few thematic things about the movies that we weren't crazy about, but mostly we dive into the art of filmmaking and of writing and of the delicate art of page to screen when it comes to these sorts of properties. And it's a really fun podcast. So this is actually sort of a part two to my Lord of the Rings miniseries. So there's the opening podcast with Mr. Tuck. I'm going to release the three audio commentaries, probably a week apart, I would say. And then it's possible I'll do a fifth and final one uh, with Tuck or someone else or or by myself, sort of look back at the whole thing and, and wrap it up because... You know, I think this is 
clearly the best trilogy ever made other than, you know, the original Star Wars. It's the one I watched the most as much as I love Star Wars. I grew up watching those movies a billion times. And, you know, the bottom line is plot and character and dialogue changes in the Lord of the Rings movies. I really don't care because the look and feel of the movies from the first minute to the last feels just like Middle Earth. And so I love going back to it over and over again. So I hope you enjoy the commentary. Now would be the time to queue up your DVDs or Amazon or where you have the movie. So this is Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring, Extended Edition. We're about to start the countdown. All right. Three, two, one, go. All right. Here we go. Fellowship of the Ring. I was incredibly nervous coming into this movie. I can't speak for everyone, but my overall understanding is that the Tolkien fans were all very nervous or scared to various degrees. But in the matter of a few seconds, with Kate Blanchett speaking Elvish and then narrating, they haven't even shown the title yet, and I'm totally in it. Brilliant casting, but that's pretty obvious when it comes to Kate Blanchett. She's always brilliant casting. They communicate so much. And then when the understated title card and title theme come on. And the fire. I already know where this is going with the fire. As a reader. And I'm in. The aesthetics are totally there. They're explaining all the most important information. And there's Galadriel, who's speaking, played by Kate Blanchett. The early look at the dwarves is great. We don't see a ton in the Lord of the Rings. And these guys are so creepy. And we'll become the Ring Race, or Nazgul Black Riders. And we see the map. I mean, at this point, I'm, my jaw is just out. How much Tolkienisms we have already heard and seen and experienced. And then even further... Okay, that looks perfect. Sauron, perfect. This could be so over the top, but it's such a cool costume. It looks huge. And there's the rain. We're two minutes in, and there's the ring on Sauron's finger. With the writing of the language of Mordor. This scene's actually taken from the two towers. pretty funny. Thought they could get away with it, but... I cut him. And then, you know, if you're not in yet, and, and you're coming to see battle, I mean, here it is. We're getting it right off the bat. The orcs look amazing as they do in all the movies. Um, You know, the CGI gets slightly better with each movie, but I still love watching this, and I'm never taken out of it. There's Elrond, played by Hugo Weaving. He's very important, to say it the least. In these movies. This is 3,000 years ago. The elves that survive may live for thousands of years more. I love that. The elves do take some pleasure from battle against the bad guys. 
There is a sealed door. The distant uh, relative of Aragorn. I should say distant ancestor. And this is great. I I mean, you know, I wasn't sure we were getting Sauron embodied. You don't get it directly in the book, although we know that has happened. This is Elendil. Also the ancestor of Aragorn. There's the sword that Aragorn will have. The sealed door, the son of Elendil. And this is direct from the book, so... I mean, who cares that Sauron lets his finger be chopped off? This is myth. This is legends. Great effects on the elf hair. And boom, shockwave. Which we will see at the very end of the trilogy. Oh, I love that helmet. There you have it. The end of the second age. Gilgalad. First battle against Sauron. Began the third age. Sildor was, I believe, the second king of Gondor and the final king of Gondor until Aragorn. Um, which, if you think about it, sort of makes Aragorn less compelling, I suppose. But he's very compelling. And this is how it was lost. This is how he was killed. I'm really not taken out of this movie ever. Um, and for a long time, I um, said and believed that this was my favorite of the three movies, even though I'd seen all three, just because it was the closest to the book in both look, feel, but also story. There are increasing changes with each one, and there's a, a kind of... Um, brilliant that that they were able to go so literal on Tolkien in the first, for the most part. But it works so well as a film, as a standalone film, and also starting the trilogy. So, this is great. Again, doesn't pay off till the third movie. We think that's Smeagol's hand before he turns to Gollum. But it's actually his buddy Deagle, they're on a fishing trip. And Deagle gets it underwater, and then uh, <laughs> Smeagol kills Deagle, his best friend, and takes the ring. Eventually turns into Gollum. So, you know, Kate Blanchett as narrator, who we don't even know at this point, unless you're, you were a nerd like me and knew who all the actors and characters were ahead of time, she seems to be privy to some information that maybe not even the real Galadriel, uh, the character that we meet later, may not have all this knowledge of Gollum, but you had to tell this to the audience, because The Hobbit came out later, they do The Hobbit first, you had to explain all this, and who better than Kate Blanchett's voice, both because of her actual voice, because she is one of the greatest living actors uh, out there, plays an absolutely central role in these few movies, with very little screen time, but as sort of Frodo's um, guardian angel, her presence hovers. And then, actually, in the Hobbit movies, which I was not a huge fan of, to say the least, uh, 
She was amazing. Her and Elrond and Gandalf had their own little mission while The Hobbit was going on, the main story. And the third movie, I have to watch it again. It happened so fast. But my impression was they were going to go, they were going after this witch or something, and she just slaughters a whole bunch of magical creatures. It just it comes out of nowhere. You never imagine Galadriel at this point in her life would be um, a ninja. Alright, and here we transition completely smoothly from big picture, scary Middle-earth history, narrated by Kate Blanchett, to a little cute, lovable hobbiton in the Shire, Bilbo Baggins. And there's the map. So we are led to believe that he made the map, and I think Tolkien would at least not disagree with the assumption that that's a possibility. Just as they have in the movies, they have, you know, they, uh, Bilbo write the story of The Hobbit, which is sort of implied in the books. And then um, Frodo eventually writing The Lord of the Rings as the second part. There and back again, The Hobbit's Tale I was the, I believe, exact original title of the book before they eventually changed it to uh, the Hobbit, and is still written there and back again inside The Hobbit. So the fact that we can go from, you know, Elrond commanding Elven Legions 3,000 years ago <laughs> to this, it is smooth transition. I'm just so in it. I'm so pumped to see Hobbit, and I, you know, heard that it was amazing. They built this entire Hobbit town. So uh, this whole thing about concerning Hobbits got cut. And I understand why they cut it, but it's so key in the book because even if you read The Hobbit um, and then you read Lord of the Rings, you know, they needed to complicate and uh, – <laughs> well, not complicate too much. They're still pretty simple. But they needed to – you know, Tolkien needed to be more specific about how the politics and the society worked um, than in The Hobbit where they actually spend very little time in the Shire. But at the same time, you could have at least cut this in half, because it's communicated to us numerous times, both in these early scenes in the Shire and throughout the movies, that they love to smoke pipe weed and eat and drink, and are both curmudgeonly and uh, very warm and loving. Sort of like they're Irish. <laughs> Or something. And I mean that as a compliment. I, I I look Irish, supposedly, even though I'm Jewish. I have red hair and freckles. And uh, um, there, I, I have no proof that there's Irish in me, but I have some Irish characteristics. So I identify with them. And I identify with the hobbits. And Tolkien basically referred to himself as, you know, a tall hobbit. Um, this represents the ideal ideal agrarian lifestyle. And, you know, already the, from the color spectrum, we're at least in our third or fourth major color palette, you know, less than 11 minutes into the movie. And they've, you know, it, geographically, w we can already understand that this is a forest on the outskirts of the Shire. Even if you've never heard of or, or read any of this stuff before. I could not have come up with a better introduction to either Frodo or Gandalf or Bilbo. 
Body double. <laughs> so this is great because if you if you know the books, you're already smiling. You know that he's joking. I wonder if newbies bought it. Fro uh, Elijah Wood plays it perfectly where he doesn't smile or frown. He just waits for it to get up to start laughing. All right, this is a tough one right here. Here we go. Jump, b body. Yeah, that's yeah, that's actually Elijah Wood. And that job, I don't know how they did that. That might have been the Gandalf body double, who's like seven and a half feet or something. So he's already pumping Frodo for information. Yeah, Gandalf is so tricksy, as Smeagol would say. He has subtle manipulations, even of the people he loves, but they're usually for their benefit. Look how beautiful this is. I lived in an uh, agricultural village in Botswana for a little while, and it was not nearly this colorful. It's basically on the edge of the Kalahari Desert, but I was very often reminded by the shape and geography, the round huts. Everything was very round and organic. Everyone was neighbors and relatives. Like this shot right here, there was a little valley um, below the village that looked just like that. I tried to capture it on f photos, but this just looks great. See, and this is the brilliance of Gandalf, is he, he's not asking if, if Bilbo's been odd, Frodo volunteers it to him. Frodo's been wanting to talk to someone about it, and he has to talk to He wants to tell Gandalf, and Gandalf knows it. They're family. And I think the they they took this out, I believe, of the final cut, which I think they should have left. Although Ian Holmes so brilliant that the 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 other few scenes with the ring that he has communicates all this, you know, implicitly. But when you're cutting things, I could see why they cut this. They also could have cut the scene in half. I think, yeah, Peter Jackson didn't make any mistakes. I just think there would have been a middle ground where he could have taken sort of half the deleted scenes and then cut them into a third or a half and added only, you know, 10 or 15 minutes, but a lot of, um, I don't want to say extra depth. There's so much depth. You know, I just... I just love both editions of all three movies, other than Return of the King, I think. Return of the King. Um, all I did was give your uncle a little nudge out of the door, referring to him, you know, basically forcing him to join the doors and the book and movies of The Hobbit, Bilbo Baggins' adventures, maybe 60 years before this, I believe. He has not aged a day. I mean, look at this. This is heaven. Who would not want to raise their children here? I mean, it's it's so obvious. And this little bit right here sums up everything about these these two characters and the hobbits. God, you know, Gandalf just loves people, and he's basically an alien. He's from the other side of the world. He's an embodied spirit, but he's so human. Nominated for a freaking Academy Award for this role. Who saw that coming? Although, who saw Return of the King winning Best Picture in eleven? Oscars. This is a great. That that's sort of a friendly. I'm glad I'm back. But right here, 
he looks al alone and it's just like, wow, am I glad to be here. You know, he, <laughs> he has thousands and thousands and thousands of years of stresses on his shoulders and reaching across the entire planet and, you know, different planes of existence. And he's in direct contact with God, basically. Eru Aluvatar. So, this is a classic behind-the-scenes scene. I've probably seen this in a number of places. I've heard it described by the director and production team. So, the individual mechanisms that we'll see, and I'll point out some, maybe, are very hard to pull off, but the basic idea is extremely simple. They built two identical hobbit holes, but one was basically twice the size of the other, or at least twice the height. Yeah, we have an age of the day. I mean, considering how young Bilbo was when he got the ring and the story, I'd have to look it up. Probably be a little younger than Ian Holm, but who freaking cares, Ian Holm? Okay, so that little handoff there, that was like, they merged two scenes, essentially. And this is where they really sell the size difference, so they had to nail it. And it actually works in their advantage that they're in this weird space because it's it's easy to show Gandalf as being huge. You know, a little physical comedy. It's important to establish that Gandalf is both wise and, you know, sort of frazzled and out of it. There's probably some more hints in the book about why he's so frazzled and why he's not able to take his full form as Gandalf the White yet. But I think, you know, he may be theoretically immortal like the elves, but time still takes its toll. So I always wonder. Elves have, uh... Because Arwen sort of wills herself out of immortality, so elves must be... It's not committing suicide, exactly. It's just, you know, accepting that you, you want to die or something. See, with the eating here, and he's talking, I think he talked about alcohol before. You don't need all the concerning Hobbit stuff, which is too bad, because it's great in the book. So the Sackville Baggitzes are distant relations, but since he doesn't have that much family, they're technically the closest family. Which, you know, would be fine, except A, he hates them. B, they know that he has money, a lot of money. I don't think they know how much money uh, he has from his adventures in The Hobbit with the dwarves uh, and Gandalf. So he's constantly avoiding them. I, yeah, I like how Bilbo is, is sort of proud that Frodo is onto his plan. That would be an interesting notion. Actually, that would have been the smart thing to do. So, if Gandalf knew right now that that ring was the ring of power, he could get Bilbo and or Frodo and the ring to Rivendell long before the Black Riders get here. But he doesn't. And the reasons for Gandalf... See, he's, ugh, it's so tough. I love how the movie plays it. 
I remember very strong visions from the book, but the overall narrative of sort of how much Gandalf knew or thought he knew about the ring, thought he knew about the ring. I like that it's mysterious here. In fact, uh, Saruman actually, you know, insults him, you know, calls him a pothead, basically, and that's why it took him so long to learn about the ring. But Saruman, of course, also did not know about the ring. Gandalf unwittingly let him know what it was and who had it. This is a great effect. And again, this sells the smoking. So now we've got the eating and the smoking. We're about to get the drinking. And this filmmaking, guys, and this is why, you know, Fellowship is one uh, where I, I feel sort of equally about... I feel equally positive about both this version and the theatrical version. I like them both. Frodo's dance is funny, but makes sense. Here's all the drinking. All right, we got drunk people. There you go. There you have it. Ah, uh, Rosie Cotton. What a beauty. Sam is in love. But Sam, in order to get the courage to talk to her, Sam is going to have to take the Ring of Power into Mordor at the other side of the continent um, to the, the Mountain of Fire and fight orcs and Urukai and spiders and he finally comes back at the end of the third movie, and, uh... I love that Bilbo still enjoys talking to kids, even though he pretty much hates everyone else in, uh, the Shire at this point. And, of course, he's telling the story from The Hobbit of the... Trolls turning to stone. Alright, introduction of Mary and Pippin, the troublemakers. Although Mary ceases to be a troublemaker pretty quickly when they start their quest and he realizes what's going on. Pippin pretty much stays and uh, not very smart um, troublemaker really till the end of the movie. And we love him for it. You can tell that Bilbo's really trying to relate one last time to these people, but he just can't. Oh. <laughs> you can hear. Sackville Bagginses are the, uh, the distant relatives that just want his money and are on his butt all the time. He's absolutely loaded from what happened in The Hobbit. He came back from fighting a dragon with, like, chests and chests of gold, and no one really is quite sure where the money came from. Uh, Frodo mostly knows, I think. They took this out of the um, theatrical edition. It's really him confessing his sins or whatever to Frodo. Yeah, he thinks he's just drunk. Which he is. Why wouldn't he be? He's a hobbit. It was, it just it works better with Frodo figuring out that he's leaving, or that something's off, uh, when he puts the ring on and starts putting it together. But anytime you get Ian Holm, you, you gotta, 
at least put in the extended edition. This is a great effect. The the fireworks that look like a dragon and scare the crap out of them. And you know, this is great because it just reinforces how provincial they are. There hasn't been a dragon in these parts for a thousand years. Which is hilarious because he just saw a really huge and evil dragon. Smaug. In person on the other side of uh, Middle Earth, so. You know, even though they can fly like a thousand miles a day, why not? It's like Spill Intense, excellent adventure here. Yep, introduce the names. The way they introduce names and places, for the most part, they nail it. And they actually introduce names of more places than they need to. So it's really fan service, but the mainstream audience really responded to all the sort of geographical stuff that we're going to see and the cool names for them and Elvish and other languages. This is classic. I love this speech. He plays it perfectly. He's just the right amount of drunk, but he gets sober at the end when he gets to the serious part. And, you know, he's... The alcohol... Proud feats. The alcohol's helping, but I think he knows it's his last performance, so why not go for it? Eleven D one. What a great concept. Why do we say 111? We should be saying 11 D1. That's an amazing comedic delivery right there that they have no <laughs> concept of. Gandalf gets it, of course. It's a total insult towards them, but in a humorous way. I think they just thought it was an insult. And that's that's the final. When they don't laugh at the the, the only sort of honest thing he says... Yeah, he's I gotta get out of here. It's interesting to think if this scenario is exactly the same, but it's not the Ring of Power, it's just an invisible ring, whether he would have been, you know, dumb enough to do this in front of everybody. But it makes for great drama. Even Gandalf didn't see that coming. I've always, you know, tried to think about between the end of The Hobbit and now, the end of The Hobbit, you know, they had no notion that there was anything more going on with that ring than, you know, invisibility power. But over time, he's come to love his precious. And, you know, did it happen quickly? Did it happen over time? Does he put on the ring just to put it on? I think he does. I think he gets drunk and puts on the ring and walks around. But it's interesting he doesn't see the spirit world with the ring race that um, that Frodo ends up seeing, I guess. It would be uh, pretty trippy to be drunk and stoned and then put on the ring of power and walk around for a while. That's, uh, I'm glad I will never have to make that decision. And this is a great little bit that he, yeah, he, he even believes that he put it in the envelope, but even before Gandalf sees it, he knows. Yeah, you know, Frodo ends up being much stronger than Bilbo, and Frodo goes through a much more <laughs> difficult journey, to say the least, in destroying the ring and bearing it for so long. Um... But in the end, Bilbo is the one that's 
more damaged by it, just from a psychological perspective. In terms of the addiction. Bilbo's traumatized by the whole thing. Alright, Frodo's traumatized by the whole thing. This is great. These two have amazing chemistry. This this really helps sell the early movie. It's fun to see the hobbits dancing around and learn these characters, but it's these it's these two. This is I mean, these gays are I mean <laughs> Ian McKellen is actually a knight, sorry Ian McKellen. Ian Hall might also be a knight. He's close. This is a great effect. They didn't overthink this or overdo this. They make him slightly bigger. And they just add a blackened effect. And it just looks seamless. And, you know, this is something I talk about in the other commentaries, which is... The restraint of both Tolkien and these movie makers in terms of Gandalf's magic. It's never excessive or gratuitous. Always serves a very specific purpose. It usually has to do with um, protection or freeing people from evil spirits. It's not, you know, incinerate spells and... Uh, Turning people to stone. It's sometimes a challenge to go back to Tolkien after reading other fantasy because there is so much open magic in fantasy. It's become a huge, if not the main part of a lot of fantasy. And I don't mind it if it's well written. You know, magic is great. But you go back and then read Lord of the Rings, and you know, you spend so much time with Gandalf, and he's clearly so powerful, but. His displays of magic are very restrained. That I, that ring that dropped on the ground, I believe, is like a huge piece of metal, you know, like a bracelet. They just filmed a certain way to look like the ring because they needed it to not bounce around, to be dropped and make you know a noise and not bounce around. So much of the, from the characters to the props, so much of these movies is about transposing different sizes and different size shots one upon another. See, I mean, they frame that in a way to make Gandalf look way bigger. He looks like he's right there. That Ian Holm is really a hobbit. So this is great, because that closed off the first act very nicely. And then immediately... We get to the scary stuff. And so when you're a kid, you know, it takes about 150 pages to really get going with the Lord of the Rings. But when you get like 100 to 125 in, it starts to get really scary. And, you know, I think reading about the Black Riders and the Ring the ring Race in the book when I was a kid was one of just the scariest things. But you couldn't get enough of it. The suspense was just fabulous. I like that Gandalf. So, at, what can he do? He can't touch the ring. And, and this is it. From this moment forward, Frodo has the burden. So you know, Gandalf the Grey, the Gandalf we see in the first movie, is um, very. Uh, 
scatterbrained, to say the least, and actually Saruman, his former master, who we're going to meet soon, calls him on that he's smoking too much pipe weed or whatever. I like how Gandalf tries to put a positive spin on this immediately and underplay the ring. It's a lot to process for Frodo. Uncle disappears without really saying goodbye. He's got the ring. Doesn't know what the hell the ring is. Yeah, Gandalf doesn't have time to explain, but... And he doesn't even know what to explain. So, at this particular moment, well, that's a great close-up. At this particular moment, I'm not sure what the sort of odds are on whether Gandalf knows or almost knows that that is the one ring, the ring of power. And here we go, just to make the connection. That is the Tower of Barad-dûr, the Dark Tower. The legions are massing. They needed to establish this early in Fellowship, even though it's not until the second two movies that uh, these guys come directly into play. That is what we call a bigature. They actually built that. It's probably like 30 foot tall. Lights are all CGI, obviously. There's Mount Doom, which always is great because it looks like a gorgeous painting, but has dynamic movement as well with the smoke and fire, but it's not over the top. Yep. I don't know if Gandalf doesn't have shadow facts yet. The king of the horses, the beautiful white horse. He does get it from Theoden in the books. So, um, Minas Tirith actually looks a lot darker uh, um, it, here. Now, part of it's because he's in the basement and the moon they're setting. But even the brief exterior and the look at the city has a grimier look to it. And to be honest, it might have been the better choice. I mean, I think the city looks much better in terms of its overall development from a visual standpoint in the final movie when a lot of the action centered around the city uh, here, the city of Minas Tirith. But having done the uh, commentaries in reverse order, um, I, I kind of like the aesthetic that the city would be a little bit more run down given the decline of Gondor. So now we're back to Isildur, the last king of Gondor, who won the war by killing Sauron, but ends up getting corrupted by the ring. I abide in great pain. And that's an amazing effect. The, they're constantly sh uh, sh uh, side-shifting the ring. So Gandalf, I can understand why he's in denial that this could be the One Ring, but he sh I would think he would have known, if not how to read the writings, that there were hidden writings, and why wouldn't you at least try to throw it in the fire? Maybe he was just nervous about what would happen throwing it in the fire. Oh, here we go. So, uh, you know, I give him basically a 9.5 out of 10 on the ring race. It'll never be as affecting and scary and suspenseful as the book. But they, they themselves and the, their mounts, the horses, and then later the fell beasts in the second and third movie, the, the dragon-like 
uh, wraiths on wings. Or wraiths with wings. They took this out of the, uh, out of the theatrical. Would have been nice only because Marion and uh, Pippin do another dance, the beginning of Return of the King. They do it for the soldiers of Rohan. And this is um, the old folks showing that they know some more stuff. Although not everyone believes it, but maybe they know more about uh, the rumblings of Middle-earth than we might think, given our introduction. So is that the gaffer? Doesn't look like Sam's dead. Elijah Wood is so great. I mean, he's so effortless that it can seem cheesy the first time you watch, but the more you watch, it's just, he is just such a natural talent. I think he was like 18 to 20 when they started this, which is hard to believe. Um, what makes sense though, because I do remember growing up that he was like right around my age. And when this movie came out, I would have been 20. So he's probably a little older than me. So we have a time jump here. Gandalf's been gone for a while. Had to go all the way to Minas Tirith and back, which would make more sense if he had uh, Shadow Facts. This is great. They do create that creepy atmosphere. Although I think there may actually have been like six months between, in the books, I mean. So six months would have been plenty of time for him to get to Minas Tirith and back. It's quite cool. Yeah, he he doesn't even want to look. Conan O'Brien did a funny skit about this, and then he saw some some weird celebrity's face on it. Or maybe Conan's face, which is so disturbing. So when he talks about the language of Mordor, it's hard to know if he, if, if the he's referring to like the tongue spoken by the orcs or or you know what Sauron, Sauron's language. Yep, and that's what the ring says, and that is on the very front of the book. That little translation there, one ring to rule them all, and in the darkness bind them. So he knows who Isildur is. So, yeah, Frodo is really educated. Now here's the here's piecing it together. The ring. Gollum. And this kind of explains why there's not a lot of sort of menacing overtones in The Hobbit that anything is happening. Which is that nothing was happening. It's just starting now.
So something that they just couldn't communicate with the movies and didn't even try and shouldn't have is that everyone from the wizards to the Balrogs to Sauron are basically spirits that have become embodied for various reasons over, you know, 10,000 years. So, you know, they killed the body of Sauron, but his spirit endured. He's telling Frodo everything. He, I mean, Gandalf has already planned this out. It has to be Frodo, and he has to move. He has to leave. I can't do it. He, I mean, you know, Gandalf is like a lesser god almost. It's hard to describe the structure. I don't really understand that, but... If he can't touch the ring safely, but a hobbit can, what is that saying? And that's the whole point of the hobbit, why it's brilliant. doesn't matter your size or your strength. It's your heart. This is great. They show Gollum being tortured without showing Gollum. They didn't really have Gollum ready, actually, in the first movie, uh, which we'll see later. In the book, I don't believe that Gandalf is there when all this is happening, and Frodo just makes the decision that he has to leave. This is a recurring theme of him testing the the, the strongest, most powerful, and most good people. And they're all briefly tempted. We see it with Galadriel. We see it with Aragorn. And it's very smart by Frodo. He, the people that he's really relying on, he needs to be able to trust them. If he can't trust them, then, you know, it's already over. Yeah, Gandalf the Grey, <laughs> not nearly the perceptiveness of the later Gandalf the White, still thinks Saruman is wise. Yeah, the Black Riders are like speeding to the house, and he's waxing poetic about how great hobbits are. <laughs> I love this. The way, yeah, the way Sam gets attached to the quest is is probably the best of anyone. Get the, you know, for, pain of death. <laughs> I've been dropping no eaves. I love that dropping eaves. A little late for trimming the verge. Writing of the movies, for the most part, is is so on point from the book, and at least the spirit. Yes, I didn't hear anything except the Dark Lord at the end of the world. I didn't hear nothing. <laughs> Frodo knows where this is going. 
Oh, man. They're just all so lovable. They really didn't miscast anything. Um, I've already done the other two movies, and so... Try to remember if I if I dissed any cast members. I don't think I did. I mean, Billy Boyd as Pippin can be kind of annoying, but that is the point of his character. And when he, you know, becomes fully realized and starts acting somewhat like an adult, you know, he's great to watch. It wants to be found. Gandalf is just scaring the shit out of him. It's an interesting strategy, but he, he doesn't have any choice. He needs to motivate Frodo and can't take a chance of, you know, subtle motivation, not not hitting home with Frodo. Sam's totally on board. We know that they're friends from the backstory, you know, but <laughs> you don't need to be told how close friends they are because their interactions from now till the end of the movie will tell you everything you need to know. And they don't become best friends. I, I think maybe people don't realize that. They are very, very close. They won't, not as close as they will be. But it wasn't just a coincidence that, you know, the gardener was the one to, to be the bodyguard. Sam also loses a lot of weight over the course of the movie. That's the point. It's a nice juxtaposition of the the corn and the uh, whatever the hell that is. See, this is blatantly an overdub by um, Elijah Wood there, but that was the point because he's <laughs> he's easing in Ian Holm as Bilbo's little narration there. Little touches like that, so well done. And again, having gone backwards with the <laughs> with the uh, uh, having gone backwards with my commentaries three from three to two to one. You know, it's nice to see them just on the go in a comfortable area and hanging out in nature. And it's great because hobbits are so civilized and refined in terms of their civilization, but they also, you know, still retain that that elf-like connection to nature. Are very comfortable sleeping out open in nature. You know, this they maybe should have kept in. I this was not in the original, just to get you pumped about the elves. The sort of Scandinavian meets New Age music is perfect. Yeah, I guess Sam hasn't slept in the wilderness much. I can sort of see Bilbo having, not trained Frodo, but going on mini adventures with him. Frodo is just so much more worldly than all the other hobbits outside of Bilbo. It's so it's so apparent from the beginning and really goes through throughout um, because his uncle is... Extremely well-traveled and rich and very smart and uh, cares a lot about Frodo. Yeah, and Sam, of course, later in the movie when Frodo is suffering greatly, is always the one to not get sleep, to not eat, to not drink water. Oh, man, that's beautiful. That looks like a painting to me, but it totally sells, especially when you see this. Yeah, this is a dark version of the hero music. Sort of the hero theme. Again, 
not going for natural sound, going for narration. And then they blend it into more natural sound. Yeah, Gandalf. It's interesting. I can't, I mean, you know, it's subtle things that Gandalf really, really is deferential to, to Saruman. He's telling Saruman all the wrong stuff. Shire. I love that. Your love of the halfling's leaf has clearly slowed your mind. I love that he blames his, his, yeah, his inability to figure this out until now because of being stoned. Up oh, here it comes. This is great shooting straight on in. This is very hard to do, move, like, move the camera like that in front of him after being on the side in a smooth motion. You pretty, you can tell. I mean, Christopher Lee is just so creepy, but you can just tell even before he starts saying this stuff what he's getting at. A great eye, lidless, wreathed in flame. I always remember that. I thought, for me, one of the many, you know, great things about the book is that you don't ever see Sauron. He's just an evil spirit controlling things. Um, they decided to embody him in this movie, but it works because that's how it was. It's just, that wasn't in Lord of the Rings, but it's in one of, you know, he's got just like thousands, thousands of pages of history that Tolkien wrote, you know, quote unquote, fake history of his world. And, uh, in that first opening battle, which happened thousands of years before this, it would totally make sense for Sauron to be embodied. So they got the best of both worlds. And they did resist embodying him at the end of Return of the King, which would be the classic, cliched Hollywood move. Yeah, totally ensnared. Try, I'm always figuring out how many doors there are here. At least four. Up, oh, Gandalf finally realizes it. The way they put those points of light in um, Christopher Lee's eyes just sells the fact that he's a zombie at this point, or you know, somewhat a zombie. But yeah, he has to say it. We must join with Sauron. Right. What? What kind of wisdom is that? Saruman's uh, looking for a fight. Definitely cannot be a coincidence. The two biggest bad guys are Saruman and Sauron. Their name similarities. Though it's possible Sauron was, was named well before, so. See, this is again, uh, magic that you just don't normally see. There's no beams of light or laser things coming out. It's just the force of these, you know, imaginary blows. It's great that you can steal the staff and then, you know, have twice as much power.
spinning Gandalf around like that wasn't easy. It's not Ian McKellen, obviously, but they found a way to do it. It is cool. They think he hits the top of the tower. What a way to go. Then he'd be, have to drop all the way down and hit the ground. Oh, man. And this is where the, the message from Gandalf comes in. The hell, he never forgets. It's always thinking about. <laughs> and this is the perfect way to get the four hobbits together. I mean, it's so simple, but it's so great. Hey! We bumped into each other trying to steal food. And then, of course, hobbits being hobbits. They claim not to like adventure, but they are infinitely brave and loyal to their friends. Sam thinks about keeping the food. It's classic. He's still that good. All right. So not only are they stealing, they're, they're picking up stuff that they left at a drop last week. Yeah, this this little uh, terrain situation here. Uh, uh, okay, actually this works. I forgot they rolled all the way down. Oh yeah. Okay, so the scene that's coming up where they're hiding, and sort of on the side of the road, and the and the black riders are slowly walking, is the feeling of it is exactly what it feels like in the book, over and over again. Yep, we've already had pipe weed, now we have mushrooms. I mean, I'm not saying anything about the, you know, Peter Jackson and Company. They seem like pretty hip people. Yeah, see, this that always throws me off. And so they drop to the lip of the road there, and you think that's where the hiding spot is. But no, they have to jump down one more level. This is great. the expansion and contraction of reality. This is a great set. I don't know how they did this. That totally looks like a giant tree. Probably ends about five feet above what we can see right now on the right there. And right, and how they come through without coming through the far right of the screen. They appear from behind the tree. That as well, I have no idea how they filmed that. Must have been hiding behind the tree somehow. Their eyes are red. See, that's the thing. You make horses' eyes red. They're still horses, but you don't feel as bad, you know, when they're trying to take out the Rig Race horse. It's not really of a choice. Oh, a lot of people don't like this stuff. Bugs don't really bother me. Snakes, snakes kill me. I, I mean, worms are, are pretty horrific because they're like mini snotty little snakes and this is it I mean this is the first big temptation and we see this again at the end of the second movie uh oh there go the potatoes and the cabbages what's great is you're thinking oh man the ring race really fell for that
I mean, you know, the hobbits do have a pretty strong advantage in terms of knowing these forests and little places to hide. But this is great that you think the horses run off and they've lost it. And then there's just this amazing shot coming up. You know, the forest stuff in all the movies, it's hard to know when it's set and when it's, uh, when it's location. It's great that Mary figures it out almost immediately that Frodo's the reason for this and it's nothing to do with this ring. Pippin, I don't think, ever figures it out. Oh, man. That's an awesome shot. Framed up against the fog and the moonlight. And this is it. You guys in or not? Mary. Right. Okay. So we already had Sam. Now he's got Mary. And there's no way Pippin's not coming on an adventure with his best buddy, Mary. That, that's the shot. It's a shot. Just comes out of nowhere. This isn't the only case, which is true, but this is one case where being small helps the hobbits. Big time. Much smaller target. You can go places you can't go. Yeah, I mean, this is totally a drama moment, but uh, what this establishes, at least, is that Frodo is somewhat athletic, which he will need to be. They film it so well, though. You really feel him jumping across. He did this, I think. Uh, maybe not. No, it looked like a stunt double. Someone threw themselves across it to those people, though. Oh, that's awesome. Yep, in the Haywater. We established that here, even though they're... I don't know why the guy doesn't have a bow and arrow, but... You know. If I'm a, if I'm a, if I'm a ring wraith, I just want to uh, BFS. Big fucking sword. They did a great job with Brie, uh, you know, they couldn't make it look as big as it needed to be, but they went for realism and, and, um, tactile-ness, oversize, which again is a lesson they did not learn in The Hobbit from themselves. They would go for these huge, you know, cities and towns, but it would be so much CGI and the color is the same. And, uh, you know, other than Gandalf, this is the first time they've met, you know, big, big people, bigger people. And, uh, you know, this is, this is a working class town, I would say. Um, at least the bar that they go to appears to be working class. So the pursuit of the Black Riders is throughout the movies, but the specific pursuit of Frodo and his crew by the Black Riders through much of this movie, it is also one of the best parts of the book because it just has this thriller, horror, suspense element. Prancing Pony, just like the book. There's some really interesting-looking pe people in here. They specifically cast bizarre-looking men. Oh yeah, this is where they learn about pints. That pints of beer is like a thing that exists. They don't even know about liters. 
This guy's perfect. They drop the underhill thing pretty quickly after Bree, but that's because it becomes irrelevant. Um, because they're just fleeing through, fleeing off-road from the ring race. Now, the six months thing makes way more sense in the book. Because Gandalf doesn't come back for, before Frodo leaves. I do not believe. If I'm wrong, I apologize. Here it comes. So that's actually a liter of beer that, that make look like a prime, because there's tiny. I wonder what they call the sub-pint. So here we hear about rangers wandering in the wild. If you're not a reader, you never really get explained what a ranger is, but if you've played any kind of role-play game, uh, from a skill standpoint, you know what a ranger is, but it's much different with Aragorn here, or as they call him now, Strider. So this is the second time Frodo's tried to put on the ring. In a very short period, as soon as he gets scared, he goes right to the ring. Understandable. He hasn't come to terms with what it is yet. And he won until he gets skewered and almost killed. <laughs> I forgot they were related. Second cousin once removed on his mother's side. Gotta love the hobbits. You know, the reveal of, of Aragorn and Strider, um, this is great, this happens in the book. The reveal of Aragorn and Strider is a little, slightly over the top, but I, for the general audience, I get it. It's good CGI making it look like it landed on his finger. Mm, it's like a pulse beacon. And this is the Shadow Realm that he's never experienced before. It's where they live. It's where Sauron lives. Not sure if that's Sauron speaking. Okay, yeah, that's definitely Sauron speaking. The Void. It's an interesting concept for fantasy. Vigo does do a good job of, of selling that, you know. You don't never really think he's a bad guy. That's his only bad line in the entire trilogy. Indeed. That's it. It's all uphill from here. So Vigo Mortensen was cast three weeks before shooting. I shit you not. They had some guy lined up, who I've never heard of. He was apparently a problem. Vigo was not quite established yet. 
to say the least. And he just owns the role. He makes it quite different from the book, actually. He's he's darker than in the book. I like that. I think that makes more sense. Yeah, stomping on the guy at the door. That's brutal. What a low blow that is. Peter Jackson does love horror. And he does, finds a way to work in some horror themes and motifs. Even though there's just a gag, just because of how fucking cool they, uh, the way they film this is, I'm all about it. They walk with the four swords vertical to their face. So you'd think they would scour the whole town and just kill everyone and hope that they end up killing the right people, but apparently they assume that they've left town, I guess, to move on. So to get that shot, Frodo had to, he was standing, actually had to sit right as the camera pulled back. Here's the explanation. The fact that they established the Nine Rings thing with Kate Blanchett narrating in the beginning and that visual, and this the fact that this is only about an hour after that, we know what the Nine Rings are. Now, the elves were not destroyed by their rings. I'm not sure if the dwarves were destroyed by their rings. They had seven. By the way, nine ring rays and nine people of the fellowship that will be forming in a bit. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the fact that he's you know, scruffy and not trying to be particularly charismatic with them makes him more trust makes him more trustworthy. So Aragorn is Gandalf's proxy in this particular situation. Probably works out for the best because of Arwen saving Frodo, but you know, Aragorn is the hesitant king. He's a reluctant king. He waits all three movies, basically, before he accepts it. But he does see himself as a protector of Middle-earth, and so he has to be involved in this quest, especially if Gandalf asks. And just the fact that they, the Hobbits and Aragorn have so many scenes together in the first movie sells the connection in the second two, even though they barely see each other, for the most part, but Aragorn and Gandalf are always talking about, you know, Frodo and Sam, are they still alive? And you just totally buy both Gandalf and Aragorn's love for them, because both of them spend a lot of time with these four. 
Yeah, this is real here, folks. Okay, that pony is fake. There's actually people uh, in the pony suit there. It's pretty hilarious. Yeah, actors hated this. I mean, the flow of geography, whether you've seen a detailed map or not, just makes perfect sense. That's a real pony. <laughs> Aragorn, uh, you know, quite uh, swiftly and easily kills dinner. Frodo knows Elvish. He's thinking of a woman. Oh, Arwen. I mean, technically, he's singing about Luthien. Who was a female elf, and he was a male human, just like him and Arwen. I can't remember how Luthien dies. I, I've read that story of Baron and Luthien numerous times because it's so critical in mirroring the, the Arwen Aragorn story. And it's one of those, you know, apocryphal, apocryphal um, Tolkien stories that is actually accessible. <laughs> Most of it is completely unreadable. I figure when I retire, the first thing I'll do is buy all, like, 50 volumes of Tolkien's historical uh, works and try and figure it out. It seems like a good task. Or play video games. See, these, these orcs look great. They actually don't repeat this look, especially with the red eyes. The orcs are constantly changing and all look so different. It's awesome. So... At the moment, we just have orcs. I mean, there's orcs from different parts of the world. But, you know, they're generally green or brownish, pointy noses, exaggerated facial features, general ugliness. They are made from elves, initially. Corrupted and tortured elves. Genetically modified, essentially. It's a great shot. Top of uh, Orthanc, Saruman's Tower. But the orcs, even when they're running, tend to sort of be hunched over a little bit, sort of an exaggerated, you know, awkward run. So the destruction of the forest and the trees plays a big part in the second movie, obviously, with the Ents and the last march of the Ents when the Ents go to war against Saruman. I love that Gandalf just looks homeless right now. He really does. He just looks like a homeless guy in the rain. It's so sad. He put way too much trust in this guy, and now he's got nothing. This looks like the location where they film when Aragorn and Aomer first meet. And Aomer's got it, and they circle them with the horses. I don't know. That's beautiful. I think the top part is CGI, but they still found a great location for it. The fact that they even stopped to call it Amansul is totally unnecessary. I like that they did it. I'm not sure I would have, but I, I like and appreciate that they name things that don't need to be necessarily named to the general audience. So they get swords, but like with guns, 
See, with guns, you can easily kill someone, even if you're an idiot and have never picked up a gun. That's why guns are so horrible and dangerous. Swords, you have to know what you're doing. And we will shortly find out that they don't know what they're doing. Well, they definitely don't know what they're doing here by starting a fire. That's like the perfect size glow. They nailed that. I wonder how they did the, the screeching uh, of sound effect. If there's any human voice in there at all or if it's just totally animal noises mixed or a computer. So the filming of this entire scene is amazing. Hamas form a protective circle, which is actually the smart thing to do. Probably more out of instinct than any real tactical uh, experience. Uh, although they do get better between now and uh, in the minds of Moria, that's for sure. Those gauntlets on his head are just amazing. The swords are perfect. It's jagged. It's humongous. Oh yeah, spikes on the shoes. Those are called crampons for um, hiking in icy locations if you're an ice climber or just very snowy and slippery. Sam, of course, tries immediately to do something. Just gets These guys just get thrown out of the way. No one even gets a, a blow, and Frodo just drops his sword and falls. I mean, what does he think is going to happen here? He's just not thinking. Yeah, it's the fact of him touching it that draws their attention. It's like they can't they can't really find the ring unless he's wearing it or you know almost wearing it. This is awesome. The fact that they stab him in the spirit world and then it comes out while he's still screaming. Oh, they look so cool. Look a little bit like the 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 uh Mountain of the Dead. Look at that. The wispy claws there. It's long, bony fingers. And then, boom. It's interesting, he, the Rigraith tried to get the rig without stabbing him, and he's like, alright, fuck it. Now it comes right out, I love that. That the sword's still in him when it comes back to non-spirit world. That he's watching Aragorn do his thing in the spirit world. Uh. So apparently they hate water and fire, and not big on the elements. They also should, uh... You know, Sauron, you'd think, could hook up some non-flammable cloaks. But, look at this. This is this is the first scene Vigo shot, people. And he was cast three weeks before shooting started. I'm not making this up. Go to the commentary or any behind the scenes. This guy just jumps off. Uh, this And this is it. This is where you buy Aragorn. You're like, okay, this guy's a superhero. He just took on five... Four or five ring rays. This is great. It just dissolves. Perfect. So we know Aragorn can heal, but he doesn't have sort of the magical healing of the elves. Um... Being a Dúnedain, a ranger from the north, and descendant from Númenor, he lives very long. He is extra strong and 
hardy and has you know tracking skills, healing skills, and sort of from a power standpoint, at life at life standpoint, he's sort of between the elves and humans. He lives, you know, maybe a couple hundred years um, at least if he survives. But he doesn't have the magic of the elves or the infinite, you know, seemingly infinite lifespan of the elves. All the shots of the sort of exposed underground factory, orc factory of Sauron is great. The butterfly thing is so cool and completely pays off at the very end of the final movie when all hope is lost. And what's great is it, they make it very clear what this signals, which is his rescue by an eagle. And then when you see that thing at the end of Lord of the Rings, where they're all about to die, fly to Gandalf, you're like, okay, well, at least one eagle's coming, and then, like, nine eagles show up. Oh, man. But, the, yeah, the workshops down here are really cool. All the shots that go up and down the shaft look super, look this stuff, super real. It looks like exactly what it is, a twisted forge. It is a working forge. It can make weapons. It's not advanced or particularly good looking. Not sure what the sort of uh, thing is on the end of the swords there. If the orcs came from... Twisted, tortured, genetically modified elves. Then these guys, the Orokai, who mostly look the same, unlike the, the regular orcs, but which is good because you can distinguish the two. These are uber orcs or super orcs. Bigger, stronger, more powerful. A little bit more intelligent, I guess. But most important, can travel during the day, which which a lot of orcs can't. Uh, these are the trolls from uh, Mr. Yeah, from Bilbo's trolls from that he was talking about at the beginning to those kids in the, from The Hobbit. I think they cut that. I don't know why. It's interesting that if you get stabbed by a wraith you, and you don't die, you become a wraith. Be interesting to see if they would kill him before we get to that point. I'm sure Aragorn would. God, that would be horrible. <laughs> so he tells Sam to go look for it and he finds it. Fitting that Arwen would be the one that could sneak up on him for sure. Because she's an elf, because she knows him. Okay. This part is over the top, and it's the fault of neither of these actors. Although, the dramatic entrance of the first elf makes more sense if that early scene, which wasn't in the theatrical release where they saw the elves, makes us much more powerful. 
her healing powers are so advanced that she can actually start healing him by just talking to him. I love how they make that wound look small but incredibly painful and infected. Okay, so the, there were five on the, the mountaintop there. Weather top. See, this is great. And, you know, I talk a lot in the other two commentaries about how I love the Arwen edition. And since their relationship was a huge part of the overall story, even though it didn't make it into the book. Need another female, you need a love interest for your main male character. Makes total sense she'd be the faster rider. I'm not sure why Sam's so mad about this. He's all he loves the elves, or it's fascinating, but but whatever. So they found an amazing uh, stunt double for Arwen for the riding. Uh, Liv Tyler did do riding, but anything where you can't clearly see Liv Tyler's face is the uh, the stunt double, and she does some amazing work along with these other guys, as we'll see. It's nice to be able to just have you know amazing horseback riders in ring wraith outfits because they don't need to talk or do anything else but ride. Okay, here's where it gets really cool. You rarely see stuff like this, man. This is why fantasy rocks. So they're faster than her, even though she's faster than Aragorn. And so she's having to swerve right and left and try and lose them. Yeah, like, they're clearly about to overtake her. This is great. Just straight away. That's a great shot. That, that's just an off-screen hand. There's probably no one in that hand. Or no one's hand in that hand, I should say. This is great. She's, there, she's trying to lose him in the trees, all this turning. This is all her stunt double. They really did this. It looks amazing. And what's so great is, yeah, you don't see this coming at all. It seems like they're going to overtake her. Where the hell she's running to? The, the, the scenery behind her looks so elvish in such a subtle way. It's like you know that that's the elf side of the shore. The Rivendell side. Oh, and this is great. Arwen does not get to really kick ass again uh, in, in, in this sense. But she gets her moment, and it freaking rocks. I actually thought that they were going to try and maneuver her into a fighting role in Return of the King, but because you had Aon and so much else going on. She's calling for the... Wow, my subtitles have the, El the Elvis translation that's not translated. This is River's coming from the Misty Mountains. That's pretty awesome. And there, the the horses. I always thought those were bears or something. It took me a while before everyone. Now that just looks like horses. I'm just an idiot. Or I thought it changed or something when I first saw it. So seamless. God, Liv Tyler's amazing. 
And what's great is she loves and cares. She loves him and cares about him so much already, having never met him before. She knows how important this is because Aragorn knows, so she knows. She's been alive much longer than Aragorn, I would think, even though he's like 85. She could be in her hundreds. Uh, But since her father was there when Isildur, well, we'll see it coming up, but Elrod is her father is very close to the whole ring situation. We'll say that. So she knows the whole story and how important he is. This is great. You see Agent Smith, a.k.a. Hugo Weaving. Um, I'm not sure I would have introduced him that way. They just wanted to show that he was healing Frodo, I think, was the idea. Again, that was great. He's so manipulative. He's you know, he was scaring the shit out of Frodo to get him to get here, and now that he's here, even though he, I think, suspects that Frodo might not be done, but he treats this like, you know, you're on vacation, everything's cool, you're still alive, all is well, nothing more to worry about. So he's always complaining, even at the very end of, of Return of the King, about the pain in his his shoulder from the the ring race blade. You know, it's interesting to think if he hadn't had to take the ring any further, whether he'd still have that much pain. Yeah, I love this. Again, I was just remembering this and not telling Frodo anything. Oh, there we go. There's the moth. How does Kenneth get his staff back? He must find another staff. Ah, the eagle. It's so well blended. It's you. You know, I mean, in the early two thousands, Star Wars Matrix, you didn't see anything this good, and it still looks better than almost anything out there. Seamless. He jumps off right onto the eagle. We know the Eagles from The Hobbit. They're fan favorites, even though they're deus ex machinas. Right, Saruman thinks Gandalf's chosen death. I'm not sure what Saruman thinks he's chosen. Once you, once you kill everybody, what's left? And it's it's funny he tells Frodo so li- uh, nothing about this, even though... You know, earlier he revealed the entire Dark Lord, Gollum, Ring story. But in some ways this is worse because it makes Gandalf look like an idiot for trusting Saruman, which he was. See, this is the best entrance. They should have just had this. Frodo Baggins, Mr. Anderson. He does have a, a, you know, a... uh... Mischievous but kind smile, you know? I mean, Hugo Weaving, just brilliant. Elrond and Agent Smith, two of the great sci-fi fantasy characters ever. And really, one of the only cool parts of The Hobbit was his appearance with Kate Blanchett as Galadriel and Gandalf and what the three of them were doing. So the notion is that the elves, while they're beautiful and their lands are beautiful and they're mostly good, see Middle-earth changing, 
the rise of man and are planning on going back west across the ocean from where they came from initially. So, you know, Rivendell and um, and Lothlorien, the two main elvish locations, are meant to look, you know, spectacularly beautiful but very sad, which is why you always see leaves falling. Rivendell is more obvious because it's just – it's like eternal fall there, eternal autumn, and all the leaves falling. It just gives you the sense of, uh, of something sad. Yeah, no longer has the ring. Ah, uh, the map of the Shire. They got that in the book, too. It's great. Good luck at that all day. Because, you know, the big map is stunning. Uh, the the Middle-Earth map is, you know, incredible. But the detail on the Shire map with all the little roads and waterways and... Lakes and ponds, bridges. Very charming. They have great chemistry. Everyone has great chemistry. There's really no major relationship where I go, man, those people do not have chemistry. Really nothing. So Sam really wanted to come see the elves, and now he really wants to go. And one interpretation is just that, you know, he's provincial and he's homesick. I happen to think that whether it's conscious or subconscious, Sam just wants Frodo away from this situation as soon as possible. To, but, you know, he can't avoid the inevitable. That's it. That's Sam. He's saying, I... I I really, Sam's just really hoping that the ring stays and they can go. Yep, so the wound, the wound would be horrible no matter what. Elrond's already planting the seeds here about his resilience. I like this. Elrond gets super serious. It's like, Gandalf, get your head out of your ass. Right, he's. They can protect the ring, but they they can't protect it permanently. Okay, so so orcs plus goblins somehow equals orcai. I'm not sure how that works. Right. Yeah, Elrond really doesn't want to fight anybody as we find out throughout the movies, actually. He just wants his people to leave. It's a, it's a dark portrayal of Elrond, and they have a dark portrayal of Galadriel. I, I mean, you know, the book is very dark in terms of the scenario and the stakes, but the characters in this movie are, they just bump up the, the, uh, you know, moral ambiguity a little bit, which makes them even more three-dimensional. What's great is seeing, you know, numerous members of each race, but because the council was so difficult to film, they talked how, 
it's like 10 minutes of, you know, like a dozen and a half people trying to film everyone's shots. Right. And so we know that elves don't like dwarves, even before we learn that dwarves don't like elves. Yeah, that's great. Men are weak. That's a very Agent Smith. You know, they're viruses. Blood of Numenor. Here we go. This is awesome. I was so pumped. Because I wanted to see this at the beginning, and they saved it now. But they showed Elrond in the beginning. He knows about the ring. I was there the day the strength of men failed. A whole age ago. This is like 3,000 years ago. The fact that it was the two of them. The senior human and the senior elf. And this, of course, is mirrored by the very end of Return of the King when Frodo doesn't destroy it. At least at first. And Frodo makes that same face, too. Where, where his face is down and his eyes are looking up. Looks so real. I mean, they, you know, we knew Mount Doom was going to look great for the third movie because there was a lot going on, but it just looks amazing. That must have been one of those things they filmed it all at once. Like, those scenes we just saw and, and all the Frodo and Sam stuff all back-to-back. It's interesting that Gandalf has to suggest this to Elrond, even though Elrond basically raised him, and he's and Aragorn's in love with his daughter, and yet, yeah, maybe he resents him being there, or he just, you know, they have to, they have to tweak some of the relationships for, for the movie. Oh man, I love Vigo just sitting sprawled out with a book. Great introduction of Boromir, because this conveys his entire character. He loves the tale of his sealed door, but he resents the the dead or almost dead line of uh, of kings that would take the power away from him and his father. Yeah, Boromir, they immediately don't like each other. Because they know, they know who each other are. He knows that if he's ever going to be king, he has to go over Boromir, and Boromir is threatened by Aragorn's, you know, bloodlines. And uh, didn't really talk much about the, uh, the disturbing overtone of all the bloodline stuff. But, but you know, it's it's this is Germanic, Scandinavian. This is what these are myths that go back a long way. And you know, I mean. <laughs> The inheritance of kingship, or you know, or being a queen or an emperor or whatever, having that come through bloodlines is like 99% of all the world, essentially. Or at least 99% of all uh, historical world cultures and civilizations who had a structure that resulted in a king or an emperor or a lord or whatever. Yeah, it's so disrespectful. Boromir doesn't clean off the blade with his blood and just drops it. He's so threatened by Aragorn. And yeah, and it's great that they just work Arwen right in. Just just keep the scene going. I mean, just by the fact that she's an elf, she's probably well older than him, but, you know, it just works. 
her being his sort of spiritual advisor and lover as well. See, yeah, Aragorn, Aragorn doesn't want to step up because he's, he doesn't see the, the heroism of Sildor that everyone else talks about. Everyone talks about Sildor killing Sauron and, and taking the ring away from him. But Aragorn sees the fact that Isildur failed to destroy the ring, and this is why we're in the situation in the first place. Interesting that Elrond wouldn't just, you know, beat the shit out of uh, Isildur, and, you know, 3,000 years ago, and either take the ring from him and throw it in, or just throw Isildur in. We'd all be in much better shape if he had just kicked Isildur in. I'm sorry, you know, I mean, don't want anyone to die, but a lot of people are have and are going to continue dying because of Isildur's choice or non-choice. As I talk about in the other movies, I'm totally fine with this somewhat cheesy relationship because they do have pretty good chemistry. You know, I would have pulled back the sort of airbrushed look a little bit. And I would have pulled back on the new agey music a little bit. But it is very soothing and beautiful to watch. So nothing's like super cringeworthy um, in, in any of the movies, even when there's some corny moments. So she says she chooses more to life, but we find out later that there's more that happens after this, where Elrond sort of learns that this is happening, who's her father, and puts the screws to Aragorn to not let Arwen be separated from her people and become mortal. And Aragorn tries to give it back, and she says, no, you keep it. And then Aragorn doesn't really know what happens to her until much later. So this is when the Agent Smith comes in, so, you know, in such a cool way. And when I say Agent Smith, I don't mean that he's acting like Agent Smith from The Matrix, his character there. But the way he cuts his syllables, you know, just the delivery, there's there's just a, um, a majesty and, uh, you know, just sort of regal sound to the, the way he... He delivers his lines. The reactions are great. I love this little thing with his hand. Aragorn's still very distrustful of Borobir already. Legolas is fascinated. Legolas is never really tempted. Uh, nor is, or is Gimli. This they cut. The council is so long. I get why they cut this. But Sean Bean as Boromir is so good. And this vision about the ring and his just actually reaching for it. This is why they should have kept it. So, so I don't know if you see that in your subtitles, but Gandalf is actually saying the one ring to rule them all thing in the language of Mordor, casting some weird magic. 
All right, and we so this even if you don't understand what he's saying. But right, and you know, I mean, so when he and Elrond were talking before, Gandalf was sort of playing down the threat, and Elrond was playing it up. Now Gandalf is fully embracing the threat. So now we're back to theatrical. Yeah. He's right. He's right. The humans are between Mordor and everyone else. Especially Gondor, where he's from. They probably have the most casualties in the last, you know, 100 years or so. Yeah, so we immediately know that he and Legolas have a relationship. Legolas is like, sit down, you piece of shit. He's your king. So Boromir asks, asks surprise, uh, acts, acts surprised here that Aragorn is a sealed Rosaire. But, so it seemed like he knew already when they were in the weapons room, but maybe he just suspected and now he knows for sure that that's you know who should be the king of king of gondor gondor has no king gondor needs no king the ring is already working on boromir big time cuz when we see the flashback in the two towers of right before he left to this council he had a much different attitude he didn't even want to come here so we've already got a Boromir moment, we got a Legolas moment, and now we're going to get a Ghibli moment that tells you everything you need to know about dwarves, especially Gimli. The way that the axe breaks and flings back is a really cool effect of, or at least shot, I should say. Frodo's already starting to think about it. The thing about hobbits, you know, they can seem a little slow at times, but when it comes to big moments, they're able to put things together that all the other races, including the elves, don't always put together right away or at all. This is great. The description of Mordor by, by Boromir. He would know. He's been the closest. I mean, Eskelioth, which is their last big fortress before Mordor, is like right there. Fire, ash, and dust. And what's great is we see Mordor a lot in the in establishment shots. It, it's all everything that he describes. But just hearing Sean Bean talk about it makes it even scarier because you see how they feel about it. Oh, here we go, elves and dwarves. Yeah, Gimli's quite militant in his elf hatred, but he flips uh pretty quick. I mean, even to the very end of the final movie, he claims to, you know, still have something against the elves, but, you know, him and Legolas bond pretty pretty quickly. Especially by the second throughout the second and third movies. 
And Frodo can see the ring of fire. And he sees the death of all of them. It's a vision there. It's a little bit of, of prophecy or uh, clairvoyance, I should say. And Gandalf hears it first. Oh, man, it's heartbreaking. No one argues. Aragorn realizes it's what has to happen. They all do. Everyone is like, oh, my God, this guy's got to do it. I like how realistic and vulnerable he is. That's exactly what I would say. Gandalf has to be first. We know that Aragorn is going to be second, both because of Gandalf as well as his, you know, I'm the defender of mankind persona, even though I don't want to be king thing. Some people hate this. And my axe. I love it. Come on, people. It's Hollywood. Let him get in a few lines like that. And it conveys a lot. They're they're showing loyalty, but they're also saying, "Hey, elf, you over there? I got keeping an eye on you." Fitting that Boromir's last. Well, not counting the hobbits, but they would have been there first if they could. This is the sweetest uh, Hugo weaving moment ever. Uh, yeah, he's Elrod. There is so. Uh, Lovable. You can tell he's looking at nothing. Thing. I love that he says thing. <laughs> it's great. It, it, you know, it, the council goes on even way longer in um, the book. And, and some of it actually has been told to us already in the f flashbacks and stories and myths and legends. Some has not. This is some added stuff here before, um, before everyone leaves. I actually really, I like this stuff rather than just hit the road. Reinforce, you know, uh, Aragorn's attachment to, uh, you know, Arwen specifically, but Rivendell and the elves more generally. I think that's his mother. Oh, here we go. Yep. So he has some sort of royal status, even though he's king in exile. So they're hinting the reforging of the sword. Now, in the books, he this is when the sword is reforged and he gets it. But it's way better for the movies. It, at least, it's way better for the movies. I'm not going to say it's better overall, but it works better in the movies that he gets it, you know, late in the third movie from Elrond as a sort of uh, final push to embrace who he is or should be. The mithril armor, 
This scene, this scene's hard to watch. Um, just, it's just, it's scary and it's heartbreaking and it's disturbing. And, uh, I don't know, something about the physicality of unbuttoning the shirt and the, I don't know. Hobbits are very affectionate. I think it's great. You know, in America, it's so diverse here, but I wouldn't call Euro-Americans particularly affectionate compared to some places. Uh, it depends on the country and the region. Oh, there it is. That's so scary. It's not as hard to do as you might think, or maybe you don't think it's hard to do at all, but uh, it's just you shoot him, you know, making that face, and then you just put some CGI on it, but it looks great. Not over the top, but still scary. Bilbo now recognizes that this, uh, what Frodo is about to have to go through. I mean, I don't think he has any idea of the scope. Yeah, this is all added too. I don't know. I would have kept this to have Elrond see them off. But the way they film it, or the way they edit it in the theatrical, where it goes straight from the council to them walking into them being in the mountains and the hero music, does work pretty well in getting the movie going after you know the council, which you know I don't think drags on. I would have done more council, but you know. Oh, and this is the, he doesn't know which way to go. You know, it's always a combination, from Gandalf's perspective and Aragorn to a lesser extent, of empowering Frodo, but supporting him, you know, never letting him forget, you know, the great import of what he's doing is but here it is Liv Tyler with a couple breaths just sells this entire thing Vigo's great with both the women um with Miranda Otto as Eowyn who loves him but he loves her just as a friend and obviously with Liv Tyler as Arwen I think he spends a lot more time with Eowyn actually and they do develop great chemistry as well and that's very different but I will say, in both cases, the female actors are so good that it's not that they carry the emotional part of the romance, because Vigo is a great actor and knows what he's doing with that kind of stuff, but it's just the two female actresses, two female actors are so, you know, just phenomenal and, and, and embody these roles. Here it is. They just embody the roles so much. It just Those relationships work for me. This is great. This is great. This is what's in your head when you're reading fantasy as a kid. This this shot. You know, the fighting is great. The battles are, you know, are a lot of fun. But it's heroes hitting the road. Got a quest. Got a mission. And we know they're going to kick some ass. And in some ways, the anticipation of the ass kicking is just as fun as the ass kicking. So a lot of geography going on. This is the mandatory... Well, we were seeing them practice sword fighting, so they're going to become great sword fighters in like three days. But, again, it doesn't matter that it's a cliche, and that's a little unrealistic. They'd learn this quick, because the character moment's great. Because up until now, Boromir has been very unlikable, and uh, 
we're going to find out that he has, actually has a really good heart. I love that Ghibli is just, you know, hassling uh, Gandalf about what they should do. The fact that uh, Gimli and Legolas, you know, are really representing their entire race, not just their particular kingdoms or whatever, by their presence here, really adds weight and gravity to their own selves and their own minds. See, here's, yeah, here's everyone's playing. It's the playing with the kids thing. Eric Gordon Bormir getting along. But, you know, I think... You know, Gimli and Legolas just instinctively get how important this is. See, this is also what's great about fantasy. This makes so much sense to me. If you're a wizard, you could send some birds and use them as, you know, like drones, basically, with cameras to go places you can't go or get there faster than you could. And we know that they're going to see the humans, but the humans have to at least make an attempt... Oh, man, these shots are great. And, you know, you can do these shots without the actors there because they're hiding. So that circling shot, you didn't even see the actors, but you wouldn't have anyways, so why have them there? Here we go. Now, this is a very important moment, obviously. We've come to m mostly distrust uh, Boromir already. Does seem to have a good heart at some level, but... Yeah, he probably doesn't even remember picking it up. He's right about this, though. So much fear and doubt over so small a thing. Now he's losing it, but right before that, he he was speaking the truth, although probably already desiring it. Frodo uh, has a great look here, Elijah Wood. Uncertainty a little bit, fear. It's great that he grabs it. And Aragorn's there. You know before they even show it but that he's got his hand on the sword the whole time. But it's cool to see. It's great. Aragorn's pre-Narsil, um, uh, or not, it used to be Narsil. Now it's Endoral, Flame of the West. I think in uh, Return of the King Commentary, I might have called it Narsil. The new one's called Enduril. Enduril. But even his pre-Endoral sword is pretty sweet. Definitely the longsword type. Though he's got like 90 knives, which is great. So, if you watch Two Towers and and uh, uh, Return of the King, my commentaries for them, I talk about the difference between the magic of, of Saruman, which on the surface is way more powerful than what Gandalf has. Even once Gandalf comes back as Gandalf the White, Gandalf's powers are more protective, but I mean, you know. Saruman can can bring down part of a mountain just by projecting his voice. 
clear why he was the senior leader. Um, and it's great because Gandalf, who, you know, we see as, from a power standpoint, is well above average, ends up in this particular struggle with Saruman looking like the underdog because he doesn't have nearly the power. He's trying right here, actually. Gandalf knows what Saruman's doing. He's trying to keep the mountain up. It's great with these subtitles I got going here. It's a good translation of everything. This looks great. Just the right amount that they could maybe survive. So whenever you see snow like this in movies, it's made of like some horrible kind of small styrofoam that like you inhale and swallow and you know, all the actors complain about this. It's probably horrible for their bodies, how much styrofoam they're inhaling. This is all styrofoam. They say it sticks on everything. So they can only do these shots like once or twice at most because it takes for ever to redress them with clean clothes and get them clean and it's movie making people it's pretty crazy the lights they have to go for some of this stuff especially since they do all of this for essentially a two or three minute bit but that's that's peter jackson with lord of the rings man he went the extra mile or 10 now we're learning lore about middle earth which is great that dwarves are greedy. That is one of their weaknesses when it comes to gold. Shadow and Flame. Okay, so you basically see the Balrog there, but because of the way they do the artwork and that you haven't seen it yet, if it's your first time, it's a little too quick to really put it together. But then when you see the actual Balrog, it's like, oh my god, it's totally that, but even way more <laughs> crazy. <gasps> I believe in the book, Aragorn decides that they go through the mines. Or Gandalf. I think it's Gandalf, actually. Gandalf decides. And it's kind of dick for him to put it on Frodo, actually. He kind of knows what Frodo's going to say. And so now it's all on Frodo. Yeah, they should have just had Gandalf make the decision that his instinct to go up Karadras was wrong and they should go to the mine. This is as is added. He's hinting about uh, already, you know, treachery within the fellowship. Not to trust anyone. Obviously, he's still going to trust Gandalf. But that's it. Uh, you know, again, this is selling the... Betrayal by Boromir, but you don't need it because we already kind of see that coming at some level. Yeah, it just looks like a giant cliff. It's so funny. Another shot at the doors by... Legolas, that yeah, that previous little bit was cut about the doors. You know, it's interesting. In, in some ways, the the small additions are, are the ones that seem easier to cut. 
because if the longer if the longer cuts are so are good, it just makes it that much harder to cut, obviously. But this is so beautiful, and you want to take your time on this scene, so you got a couple, uh, got to cut a couple minutes out, so we can spend some time here. This looks amazing. I mean, there is actually a, the drawing, you know, painting of this in the book, and they just put it, you know, right on the, on the, yeah, on the wall of this clip. It looks so good. Gate of the Elves, open now for me. I'm, it's true, they should put more subtitles. There's a lot of elves spoken, we don't really hear what they're saying. Yep, no, no subtitles. Listen to the word of my tongue. So somewhat with these subtitles, like, translated all this stuff, that's crazy. <laughs> like, that get-up just pushes on it. Oh, man. Ian McKellen's great. You know, we keep getting hints throughout the trilogy that Gandalf, while already super old, is now on the last length of his own, you know, ridiculously long life. But we're getting hints that he's, you know, he's forgetting stuff, losing some power. Not quite the wizard he once was. It's funny this part with Bill. They keep this in the uh, the main cut. That's something I would have cut. We really haven't established much relationship with Bill. It's really to show Sam's concern for all forms of life, not just human, and the relationships and attachments he has. Unclear whether Aragorn thinks that this water specifically is dangerous or whether it's just a good idea in these type of environments to not fuck with the water. And again, I don't think Frodo is the one who figures this out. You know, they're really putting a lot on Frodo in the movie more than the book, but from a movie standpoint, it makes sense because he needs to continuously be the focus. So if you got to give him some stuff that's normally from Aragorn or Gandalf or whatever, for the movie, I'm fine with it. The whole idea of the crystal and the wizard staff being able to be used for light is classic, and it was become classic from Lord of the Rings. Uh, I, it is an interesting concept, though, that Gandalf can create very bright and directed light, but he needs a, a physical source. That light has some special property that it's, even for embodied spirits like Gandalf, you need a little extra help from, from Mother Earth. What's great about this is when they first walk in, if you know what to look for, you can see it before they do. But if it's your first time watching, you, you find out when they find out. So the third possibility, of course, they're trying to avoid is going to the Gap of Rohan, which just means near Saruman and Isengard and his Tower of Orthanc, which they don't want anything to do with. So this was the first big sort of monster battle in the series. There aren't a lot. There's Shelob the Spider, and there's this guy. But it looks so good. You know, 
The arms look a little two and a half D, but the cutting of the arms looks amazing. And then when we finally see the f- head, oh, you know, where is it? Oh, no, it's horrifying. You can't even tell where the eyes and the mouth are. Oh, that's great. It's great. Cutting giant tentacles. So fantasy. Yep, there. There. Yeah, you can tell it's a little. Yeah, that's really it. That's the only major CGI shot in the series that. But this looks great. When they're fighting it, you could sort of tell. But it is a sea monster, so come on, people. Or a lake monster, I suppose. Interesting to think whether Gandalf could create actual flame. Um, you know, Saruman can shoot flames, which he does in The Return of the King. We know that the Witch King of Angmar, who is the lead ringwraith, or Nazgul, has a flaming sword, but we do not see... We see a lot of light from Gandalf. It's cool. His, his powers are, are light-based. I think it's a great idea. As opposed to fire, which we see so much. This stuff is... Yeah, there's a mix of theatrical and, non- and uh, extended throughout this. But as always with Lord of the Rings, they gotta spend time just walking around and... It's up to the actors and the filmmakers to make it interesting, and for me, it always is. There's rarely any terrain crossing that that isn't interesting or fun. So they took this whole thing out about Mithril. Um, obviously, you know, when Frodo gets stabbed by, by the troll, and they think he's dead, and then he ends up being not dead because he has a... Uh, a, a suit of chainmail armor made of mithril, which is like gold mixed with diamonds, basically. It's like indestructible. Very valuable. Right, so this is totally a case of just saying, oh, it's mithril, it's super hard. Oh, and Bilbo has one, and then we find Frodo has one. It really works either way. Uh, um, I think the theatrical cut is you know, more interesting dramatically to move this along a little bit quicker. Um, but the idea with the extended cut is, you, you know, you get sort of more world building, even if the flow of the drama isn't quite as good. Um, which is why all three movies, while I like a lot of the extended stuff in this movie and Two Towers, Return of the King is the only one where I pretty much will only watch the extended because there is like three to four uh, three or four scenes in Return of the King that were cut that really diminish and hurt the overall um, structure and feeling of cohesion and just coolness factor of the movie. I mean, they have three scenes of you know fantasy coolness factor, you know, level eleven out of ten. But what makes a couple of them even better is how important they are for the plot. So. 
uh, in the characters. So, you know, the first two I often will watch um, just the normal editions. It's really with all movies, with director's cuts. It's sort of half and half. It's like half the time director's cuts are far superior than the original, and you'll only watch them. Like Kingdom of Heaven is a perfect example. Or for me, Return of the King. But there's also one that are fun to watch to see some extra footage. But when you really just want the experience, you just watch the theatrical cut. Especially when it's Lord of the Rings, it's like three plus hours per movie already before the additional scenes. This is very important here. This lesson about pity and not deciding who deserves to live and die and not deciding, you know, who should live or who should die. And, you know, in this moment, it seems just like a moral lesson being taught by an old man to a kid. And he's also aware that, yeah, they need Colin, but he can't say a lie. So, you know, Gandalf is tapping into a little bit of, of prophecy here. So it seems just like a moral lesson to kind of humble Frodo a little bit or something. But it it has the effect of when they do end up with Gollum, and Frodo kind of turns Gollum to... To be Smeagol, his more original self, who acts more like a normal person and not just an evil little demented creature. That that speech about pity, I think, is very much in Frodo's head. Especially every time Sam <laughs> tells Frodo that they should either let him go or just kill him. You know, Sam Sam is saying then what Frodo just said now, but Frodo's connection with Smeagol allows him to, um, you know, ultimately agree with, with Gandalf's premise here. Both that they need him and that, you know, it's a big decision to decide who lives uh, and dies. Always follow your nose. Yeah, I didn't need that line. Of course, we don't know if he actually smelled it. Well, we know he smelled it or he's just... Re referring to using your nose in a more figurative sense. Alright, so here's what we really see. He can manipulate light. He takes a tiny little crystal and lights up an entire cavern. We also find that it's a protective light when they're being surrounded by the goblins a little bit, which is awesome. That's a Hollywood line, which I like there. Looks so lonely. I mean, where are all the structures? You know, there's storefronts. Where the res uh, residential uh, residential area? Gimli knows right where to look, and he's he knows. So this is when Gimli becomes a three dimensional character. Legolas is really the one that always remains two dimensional, and I'm not putting this all on Orlando Bloom. They just didn't give him that much to work with. He was partially. Uh, given reparation for that uh, in the Hobbit movies where he was pretty good, I suppose, and there was a love interest and whatever, but, you know, Legolas works totally fine as a two-dimensional badass elf. 
but the, but Gimli crying is is something you didn't expect to see. I like this. Just a perfect sound of the helmet hitting the thing. That's the thing. It's those little sounds that just sell that it's real. I mean, do you know how much time to make everything in this room, you know, from the books to the skulls to the stuff on the ground to the tomb to their costumes. I mean, we're talking weeks and weeks and weeks of works of work by dozens and dozens dozens of people. Yeah, uh, 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 I think Legolas is the sort of Captain Obvious guy in the movie. Like, we, mu- we, we must not linger. We need to move. I have a bad feeling about this. This is great that he reads this. <laughs> yeah, it's funny that Gandalf thought he could trust Pippin with his stuff. Makes sense. It's a book of history from the king. Picks it up, goes to the last couple pages, and it just ends. He's probably dying as he writes that. Balin, that is. Uh, Gimli is an uncle. who's the, the king, I believe. This is a great device. I don't know who thought of this. I mean, they, you know, it's easy to come to the general idea that Pippin would drop something, but the amount of things that drop and how far they go is just, is classic. So, Pippin screws up big time in this movie, comes through a lot in Two Towers, actually, at the end, and then screws up again at the, uh, screws up big time again at the beginning of Return of the King with the Palantir. Where, you know, he almost gets killed by Sauron and gives away information. Or almost gives away information. Fool of a took. That's partial rhyming, and Tolkien meant to do that. I'm not sure. There's a word for that. When the, when the vowels rhyme, but not, um, the consonants. So from now until pretty much the end of the movie, it's just nonstop awesomeness. And not just action, because you got like the ancient elven forest of Lothlorien, which is arguably the coolest f- fake location ever. But starting with this fight against the goblins and the uh, cave troll, the cave troll looks so good. Yep, this is this is a fight scene. This is not a battle scene. So we know the hobbits have been practicing a little bit, but you know, adrenaline will get you going. And, and being surrounded by these warriors will also give you some confidence. It's great that so they have so the hobbits are in back, obviously, and they they're surrounding Frodo. So this is the exact formation you want. So already the fellowship has developed tactical. Um, Synergy without even really practicing. Sword is still glowing blue. That's great. Sorry if, if I'm silent during parts of this. I love this fight.
Uh, dude, Aragorn decapitates. I've been trying to count at least four creatures. Uh, there's two in this. There's one in the two towers. Um, and then he decapitates the the big teeth guy with no f- eyes and face at the Black Gate. End of Return of the King. This is great. They're pulling on his chain. We know he's a slave. That's the, what makes it all so sad. And then they give him a kind of sad uh, looking and sounding death. This is great. The fact that Aragorn could throw swords like knives, that, that's just awesome. Yeah. Alright, we're fighting together. And see, that's what Lord of the Rings is about. I mean, as horrific as Tolkien's experiences in World War One were, and why he would never choose war over peace... There is a sense of kinship between people when the, you know, when the gauntlet is down and the shit hits the fan and you got to fight and you figure out who you can trust in that situation builds a sort of fellowship. And I think that's part of the obsession by men mostly with war. It's not all about violence. It's about, and that's why a lot of people join the army or, or the thing they try and take from it. It's the fellowship of it. Sam fighting with the pad is great. Oh man, yeah, the cape troll is 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 scary, but also like looks, you know, um, surprisingly. I don't know, not harmless or docile, just sort of, looks like an animal, you know, more than a troll. I guess I would say. I mean, trolls being, you know, a little, having a little bit of sentience. So they cut away from the hand to Frodo. They're not even showing the the troll hair. Now Now they're showing him, oh, that was all CGI. And, here, and now this is this is Aragorn fighting nothing. Uh, the way the camera kind of stumbles, sw- almost in a drunk way, swings around, it, it mirrors what's going on with the movements of the cave troll. I absolutely I love that aspect. Yeah, Frodo, not a great fighter, but that's not why he's important. You know, a lot of fake deaths in the movies, but you gotta have it. And this is the best, is that is that the other two hobbits are the first to respond and, you know, basically jump on the guy's head, thinking that they're probably not going to live more than a few more seconds. But if Frodo's dead, then all is lost. Which isn't really true. I, I mean, I think Sam and maybe Mary, but probably, man, Sam at least would be strong enough to carry the ring. But they also just love Frodo. That's what this is all about. This is great. This, uh, Gimli coming in and out of frame there with the, uh, oh, yeah, you can tell some of those aren't exactly connecting. But for the first movie, 2001 looks amazing. Oh, God. Yeah, that's brutal. That's a, that looked great. And then this is practical. They build a practical dead troll. 
just for that. <laughs> that spear would have skewered a wild boar. See, they spend a lot of... I mean, they spend a relative lot amount of time on this mithril armor here. They didn't need that whole previous scene in the mime. Mithril is cool, though. Great concept. Obsidian. I mean, there's always that indestructible metal or stone. Yep, this is uh, RPG action right here, baby. This is, you know, roaming through dungeons, killing bad guys, got your party running around. It's so fun. You know, it's video gaming, but in the best sense. This is the sort of image that video games gave to the film genre that they really wouldn't have thought of before. Oh, yeah. Dragon Age. Might and Magic back in the day. Wizardry. Betrayal at Krondor. Alright, so here's where the, the protective light comes into play. They don't oversell it, too. I like it. Oh, that's a great face. So, Orcs and Goblins. Basically the same thing. Uh... Often goblins are like the ones that sort of live in the mountain here, the little insect-looking ones. So I just call them goblins, and the ones from Mordor or uh, are orcs. Okay. So I was already sold at this point in the movie. I mean, I, I was so in. I was relieved. I was enjoying myself. It, it was already living up to the hype and more. But when the Balrog appears into this scene, in the next couple scenes, they nailed it. And, you know, there's some very famous concept artists, um, or I should say there's some very famous artists who drew and painted amazing works depicting scenes in Lord of the Rings that all of us fans know from growing up. And a couple of the most famous were hired to be on staff for the movies. And so a lot of the stuff looks the way we remember as kids because we looked at those picture books as kids. And, and you know, we had our own ideas from reading the books, but the way they drew uh, the pictures was almost imp slightly impressionistic so that it wasn't hard lines and edges and, you know, the colors were blurred and it still left much to the imagination. But this is a fully, fully realized version of the Balrog, an ancient demon. And I should mention, I've been doing some extra research. I love reading Wikipedia and online stuff about um, all the, the backstory and myth and history um, and lore of Middle-earth. It's very difficult to read books like The Silmarillion. I mean, they're straight up just history books, but I like to try and piece some of it together, and, uh, you know, 
Gandalf, among some other characters, is really a spirit from an ancient time in the world who's become embodied as a wizard or an Istar, Istari. This is great with the arrows here. But apparently, Balrogs, who are corrupted by Morgoth slash Melkor, sort of the ev- evil god who created or, or at least twisted Sauron. So the Balrog, who looks nothing like Gandalf, are actually from the same class of people called Maiar, uh, you know, which is like a third level god, a spirit, whatever you want to call it. So they're actually from the same source, which is pretty hilarious, but it makes sense and adds a lot to the battle at the beginning of the Two Towers, the very, very beginning, where, you know, you see the part where Gandalf falls off the cliff and then you follow him down the pit with the Balrog, fighting the Balrog, beating his ass, he's so much bigger than him and seemingly so much more powerful, but Gandalf's just, just, you know, wailing on him. Just makes it that much cooler. So yeah, they're from the Maiar. They're the Maya, I believe. Yeah, see, this is a physics thing that makes sense when you first think about it, and then doesn't really make sense when you think about it more. But then the third time you think about it, it just looks awesome, so who fucking cares? They sell the green screen on this pretty well. I think there's a big jump between this movie and the second two. I don't know if that's just how technology fell. Like, that is clearly a green screen shot. You don't really see that much in the second two movies. It's usually perfectly blended. doesn't bother me at all for this movie. It's just something I've noticed. Each movie takes a big jump, but there's really... The biggest jump is between this and Two Towers, I would say. All right, here we go. Another green screen that looks pretty good. And the Balrog just comes, just like in Saruman's book, comes right out of the fire. And this is what I grew up believing a Balrog looked like. And I don't know if it was the art by those artists or what I, you know, just this is actually described very well by Tolkien what he looks like. I mean, this is it. It's it's. He's, he's slightly incorporeal, you know, he's not just a giant minotaur. There's like a dust that's following him. There's not too much fire, which is great. So they reshow some of this, the very beginning of Two Towers, and then you see, we'll see Gandalf fall in a minute. After the Balrog, but you won't see anything here. Second movie, you see the, where they go in their fight. Oh, yeah, the Flaming Sword. Flaming Swords are really the coolest thing on the planet, I mean. Oh, look at that. See, now he's taking more fully corporeal form. But he still has all that sort of dust and, and debris around him, or whatever that is. That whip is described... Exactly like that in the book. I, I don't know if that was hubris by the Balrog to think that that you know wasn't gonna happen, but uh, who cares?
Yeah, they, that's perfectly uh, measured and timed, the way the whip hovers there. So it's not totally, you know, a, a gag that comes out of nowhere and takes his foot. So, in the Two Towers commentary that you'll hear, hopefully, I talk about, you know, what are the chances he chose to com- completely voluntarily to drop, and what are the chances he just couldn't hold himself. And in the first movie, it seems more like he just couldn't hold himself, because there's not a lot of reason, unless you know the books and the backstory, not a lot of reason for him to kill himself there. But... When we see the beginning of the second movie where we see the continuation of that fall and he takes out the Balrog, we realize it's a bit of a test, actually. Um, and that, the, you know, we can extrapolate that that Balrog being awakened might cause a problem for them down the road. There's other reasons, but it's left mostly ambiguous and I'm, I'm good with that. Yeah, the Frodo crying, you know, shot coming up. doesn't really make sense, this amount of crying. I think Frodo would really be the only one to truly... Well, that's not right. That's not true. Okay, so Legolas would definitely know Gandalf well from being a prince of the woodland elves. Aragorn certainly knows Gandalf the best. He, of course, is trying to get everyone up because he's the leader. It's really the only time we see Legolas lose his cool emotionally. Yeah, they call them orcs. I, I don't know. I just call them goblins because they look different enough. Legolas. <laughs> when Tony Stark grabs Hawkeye at the end of the Avengers, he'll clench up Legolas. <laughs> Flies him up the building. Oh, man. I love Hawkeye, but Legolas of these movies with the arrows and the hand-to-hand is just spectacular. Yeah, this is a little bit much. They really could have just come to this, you know, Pippin, like, you know, hunched over on his side, hysterically crying. It is a little much. We all miss Gandalf already, but... But maybe if you're seeing the movie for the first time in the theater and you don't know the story, it works more. So, not really going to pass much judgment there. Really not passing judgment on much. Uh, like I've been mentioning, I did these in reverse order. It's just been really fun, actually. It's like reading a book backwards a little bit. It's just a cool, cool idea. Um, but... I just don't have that many complaints about the movies. So... This is the forest of Lothlorien, also called Lorien. One of the sort of three or four main homes of the elves on Middle-earth. Even though Lothlorien is mostly character stuff in the book and not necessarily plot stuff, um, there are a lot of plot implications, of course. <laughs> yeah. <sighs> yeah. I mean, that line would be terrible by anybody else, but it's great with Ghibli. Eyes of a hawk and ears of a fox. Even Eric. I love it. I love that they hate each other. 
The elves are worse than the dwarves. I, I think the dwarves hate the elves because the elves hate the dwarves. Is the impression I get. Or at least just looked out on the... It's like, you know, the elves... Uh, if we go back like 10 to 15 years, the elves would be the Yankees and the dwarves would be the Red Sox. <laughs> this is great. I spit upon your grave, damn stubborn elves. <laughs> See, I wish they had shown that in the movie. By the way, Gimli without the helmet and stuff looks just totally different, and we rarely see him like this. Celeborn, I believe is his name, the the consort to uh, the queen. Galadriel. I'm not, it's not clear to me why Galadriel's a queen and Elrond's a lord. They seem to be equals. Um, and then you've got Legolas's father, whose name I forget, um, who was actually pretty good in The Hobbit. He was very much a dark elf. Um, I guess you would say. That, there's Gimli. And he's a good looking guy without the helmet. Look at him. Aragorn really has to beg. Sorry, that's that's not Salaborn. That's that's Haldir, uh, who you know fights with them in the two towers and the uh, the Battle of the Hornburg of, of Helm's Deep. You know when the elves come offer their help. That's Haldir, and uh, he dies, of course, in a very gruesome but poetic way in the Helm's Deep battle at the end of Two Towers. All right, so they were sort of on the outskirts of of Lothlorien. This guy's like uh, Scandinavian. He's got an interesting accent. So you know, when you read this in the book, it's so spectacular. You could never imagine that it could be, you know, visually manifested you know, visually realized to this level. And it's like, it's even bigger and more spectacular than I thought it was reading the book. Oh, man, it's incredible. I mean, there's obviously CGI, but there's obviously a lot of practical things going on as well. This is a set, but looks like it's on the much bigger uh, stage, if you will. Now, the sort of, you know, godlike entrance of, of, of the king and queen of the elves, it's not cheesy if you've read the book because, you know, they are such holy creatures in a way. And this is how it would feel to meet. Lady Galadriel, who's been around for, you know, 10,000 years or something. There's Celeborn. I think she's, act yeah, she's the one in charge, which I like. There's a similar dynamic in the, the Rift World novels in Midkemia by Raymond E. Feist. There's an elf queen, Aglorana, I believe her name is, and she has a human consort, actually, although he's not totally human. 
He's part Valhiro, which is ancient lords, dragon lords of that universe. Highly recommended. Rift War series. Feist. There it is. Balrog of Morgoth. Morgoth, who was Melkor. The bad guy god. So, it's great about Melkor, or Morgoth, or whatever. Some sort of god or sub-god. They're the, the evil god. The bad god. Is that they cause so much destruction. Or he causes so much destruction. I mean... The the Balrogs and, and Sauron and all this stuff comes straight from from Morgoth. That's all you need. You can have a million good gods. You got one smart bad god. This is great. I love what they do here. It's just his eyes and, and his reaction of fear and desperation. And then we find out later what was happening there. See, she's such an. She's even narrating, even when she's on screen. Yeah, she's just an exposition fountain, but she's so, you know, so majestic. It's just she sells anything. Kate Blanchett sells anything to anyone doing it. You know, any time, as far as I'm concerned. She's one of the goats, greatest of all time. This is a cool little bit here, where she's speaking to them, but looking at Frodo and talking to him. Oh, there's, there's, uh, yeah, there's a little evil in Galadriel. Someone like her is too complex. I don't care about, you know, they say the elves are pure good or whatever, blah, 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 blah. Reality is, it's not true. There are some bad elves, and it can't be as long-lived and powerful and smart and connected to this you know, spirits of the planet is Galadriel and not have some evil in you, even if it's just an understanding of evil that you can, you know, sort of lock away, but understand at a deep level, or whether there's something actually, you know, not purely good. Sam's little um, eulogy poem is great. I think this is in the original edition. You need this. The hobbits would, of course, be the ones who would miss him the most. <gasps> oh, Aragorn and Gimli. That's great. Because Aragorn and Legolas are both elves, basically. They're, they're totally see eye to eye in most everything. Gilly's just a curmudgeonly pain in the ass, but he can fucking take down orcs <laughs> with his axe. In very creative and effective ways. So this is a great move to seem like he's on a redemption arc here, or starting a redemption arc. And I say, Galadriel told him that there's no hope left. And Aragorn tries to comfort him, and, and Boromir reaches him halfway, kind of starts treating him like an equal, not his king, but maybe as a friend. But of course, once he has a shot at Frodo alone, you know, all of this, 
you know, personal progress just goes away. Yeah, he says his father Denethor's rule is failing, and, you know, people lose faith. He he understands that his, his father's not in a good place. And with the with the added scene, the two towers, where we see him and his brother and his father right before he leaves for the council, so it kind of takes place right before the first moving, you see his concern about his father's condition there. Now, we've seen Minas Tirith very briefly with Gandalf earlier, but again, hearing him describe it is beautiful. The breeze and the light and the towers, the silver trumpets. I mean, these two guys are knights. They are medieval fantasy warriors. I completely buy it. From minute one, they, you know, they become more convincing as time goes on. You know, the death of Boromir is one of the great all-time, you know, literary uh, scenes and images, and they completely, you know, realize it in this movie. But it is a shame not to have more Sean Bean. It's the exact same thing in Game of Thrones. Spoiler alert: Sean Bean as Ned Stark gets gets executed at the end of season one, and the series never really recovers. Um, in my not so humble opinion about Game of Thrones. So this is one of the great scenes of the trilogy. Um, I think great, you know, cinematic scene in terms of film history, uh, personally. The chemistry they have is so immediately clear. Meeting her, even the wisest, even I cannot tell. It's a great concept. So simple. Pool of water. But don't know what it's going to show. Not talking much here. I just, I love watching this stuff. You know, I, I said that, that the forest and kingdom of Lothlorien jumped off the page into these movies. But this scene in particular, it just, you know, I mean, watching this movie, it feels like home. I know it seems weird, but it's so close to the original in both literature sense, but also spiritual sense. So this is actually what in the movie becomes an alternate future that never happens. But everything he's seeing here, well, not the orcs necessarily, but the slaves in the Shire happens in the Lord of the Rings book. At the end, they come back from the war after everything they've been through, and they find that for revenge purposes, Saruman and Wormtongue are there, 
creating a, you know, Nazi-esque Hobbit society, and the, and the Hobbits have to kill all these bad, bad Hobbits. It's pretty brutal. I think that she knew what he was going to say. But he but she wanted to make sure that he saw the eye of Sauron. She's seeing the eye of Sauron. Gandalf is seeing it. All the strongest people, the eye is on them. And this is great. And this is where the scene has just been beautiful and a little creepy and cool. And this is where it becomes epic. This is film history. Because of all the people he offers it to, she's the most interesting, and this is the longest reaction and most extreme. Ugh. This was so cool in the theater. All shall love me in despair. I love that line. And the blend back to Kate Blanchett is seamless. It's totally seamless. It looks great. Kate, you rock. We love you. But basically what she was saying is she would be Sauron. She'd be her version of Sauron. Um, and at least as powerful as him. Again, the comparative powers of these different spirits and species is tough. Yeah, she says she'll remain Galadriel. She's facing her own existential crisis. You know, she is going to cross the sea, but she's much more hesitant than Elrond and his people, apparently. The, the That little ring bit there, her ring, you know, one of the rings of power, um, got, was kind of... She was just trying to make a connection with him over the ring, but his is much worse. So this is where Frodo makes the decision to go solo, that he can't trust anyone, or at least can't rely on th those he wants to rely upon. The Urukai are, are pretty uh, hideous. I don't like them as much as the Mordor orcs, Mordor orcs, from the third movie, primarily, because those orcs are just—they're cartoonish and they all look different. They're also scary in their own way. The Urukai mostly look the same. It's a lot of um, paint. But face paint stuff to change the look. And it's interesting that the that the regular orcs, the lower orcs, are, you know, the servants and the slaves. They're arming the Urukai who are way more powerful. 
Something that's not really talked about, um, this is sort of meta Lord of the Rings here for a sec. Um, if it's discussed in the book, I'm not sure. I don't remember. It's not something Tolkien would necessarily concern himself with, which is, even though there's 10,000 Urukai in the, um, in the final battle of two towers, And far more orcs at the Battle of Return of the King. Numbers were much greater in Return of the King. But the orc are so much more powerful, you know, orc for orc, uh, that, you know, with... Um, what was left of Theoden's forces and then all of Aomer's um, 2,000 horsemen and horses it, it were able to give them more courage when they got to the to the the uh, final battle or, or the final big battle, Battle of Pelennor Fields, the Return of the King. You know, it's like I always like the uh, to to do the hard work first and then the easy work, or like in a yoga class, I like. To, you know, get the hard stuff out of the way, and then you know, do more relaxed postures. But in terms of life challenges, it's usually better to get hard stuff first because that will prepare you for hard hard stuff later. So, Lothorian, amazing, never to be seen again. This stuff I didn't love. Everything with the presence, um, this, this could have been communicated much more quickly and less clumsily. But they do come in handy. Mary's dagger helps Eowyn kill the Witch King of Angmar, the Ringwraith. Sam's rope is used in the extended cut of two towers. Um, nothing too important. Frodo's light seems important um, and does help them beat the spider, Shelob, uh, eventually, but... Legolas gets a sick bow. We probably already had a pretty sick one, but this one's going to be better and he'll be even awesomer. And this is, of course, the turning of Gimli into not an elf hater. I mean, at, at this point, I mean, he can still make jokes, but uh, he's so in love with her. He is under her spell, but he realizes it's not the kind of spell he thought. It's just her, you know, just glowing, majestic personality. I can't remember which parts were in or out in this scene. Aragorn says that he wants her to leave, but you know, I think this is still his, Elrond. He feels he owes it to Elrond and to the elves.
I'm not sure this was in theatrical cut. I wish it was, you know, that he, that he, that she is also rooting for him to take up his mantle as king. Just like Elrond, these non-humans, they really care for him and they believe in him. Yeah, they probably felt they didn't have time for this at the end of the movie, but... And the ancient cause of Alisar. It's just, it's not, it's not important enough of a present to, you know, merit such a dramatic amount of screen time. But I love the actors and everything always looks great, so I don't care. This is amazing. This is totally like Mary, Mother of Jesus type stuff going on here. The most important gift by far, um, well, from an emotional standpoint, Gimli's gift was the most important. But <laughs> for a winning the war standpoint, the Mary's was clearly the most important because, you know, they killed the head fucking ringwraith, man, the witch king. And it's great that Gimli is just able to openly, you know, opine about this. With Legolas. And Legolas isn't making fun of him. He's happy. He's not condescending. I always felt like Legolas himself wasn't particularly, uh, you know, anti-dwarf. That just a lot of his people were. And, you know, Gimli just constantly saying stuff. He's gonna, you know, push back. Um, Gimli, I think, really did have to get past that. And I think it's cool that Legolas never holds it against them. I know they talk about this in the appendices, but in my world, after this whole war is over and the movies are over, Legolas and Gimli would, you know, just like form their own little troop and travel around the world, <laughs> do shit and hang out and get drunk even though he can't get drunk. I wonder if they just filled those beer mugs with grain alcohol and gave that to Legolas during the drinking contest, whether that would have... Knocked him on his ass. But yeah, the Urukai do look like a little bit of a standard monster um, type. Uh, that was the one thing I didn't love when I first saw the movie, but when I started to see all the other creatures in the second and third, and all the, all the different looking orcs and stuff, I was like, okay, we're, we're in good hands, we're in good shape. They wanted to hold back on, on the, uh, you know, the the Academy Award level costume design effects stuff. So right, so this is the third time we see Hob, uh, third time we see Gollum. First, he's being tortured in uh, Mordor, and we just see his arm. Second time, we sort of see that his eyes and the outline of his head when he's spying on them in Moria, and now he is here. Getting closer and closer. It is interesting that they just never kill Gollum. It, it feels like they just never got around to it, you know? When you ask a question like, for example, with these movies, 
if they had killed Gollum, you know, now or even before, is there any scenario under which Sam and Frodo still managed to destroy the ring without Gollum? That is called a counterfactual question. It's it's a hypothetical question. It's a what if question. This movie makes it pretty clear that you know they wouldn't. Not because they're not strong enough. It's just that you know in life you need certain things to fall into place. Sometimes they're good. Sometimes they're bad. And sometimes, like with Gollum, they're both. Ugh, Boromir is so hurt that Aragorn won't acknowledge the strength of Gondor because Aragorn will not tell a lie. And he does not believe in the people of Gondor. And we will see why in the third movie. They don't do themselves, well, uh, you know, they don't do themselves any favors. At least the guards of the city. These shots on the water are amazing. Um, nature porn, love nature porn. I just could look at that New Zealand, uh, uh, environment and ecology all day. I'm so glad they kept this in the movie because they've been talking about kings and stuff, but you haven't seen a kingdom yet, but just from this, you, you're okay. This kingdom must've been very powerful in advance to build something like this, of this size and level of artistry. Yeah, this is an alternate world I could, you know, I, I feel like I could live in, just in the sense of how fully realized it is, those feet, oh, God. Just great. They build it right into the tr the uh, countryside. And they really, do, you know, they, they dwell on it and they show you lots of great angles because there is civilization, or there was, and, you know, that's what, uh, that's what they're fighting for. Alright, so from here on out, Shroud Bean is just amazing. I know that Ian McKellen got nominated. I think Sean Bean could easily have been nominated. He didn't have nearly as much to do. So that would have never happened with this kind of cast. But that look he just gave there before, I mean, it's its in his bones. He needs the ring. Okay, so here's Gimli doing the Gimli thing, which is bitching about how difficult it's going to be. But he's not doing it to complain. He's just pointing out that this is a stu stupid and dumb idea. <laughs> Master Dwarf. Master Elf. It's great. All the lingo. Yeah, Legolas knows something's going on in the western shore. I said that as a joke a, uh, a little while ago, that I could feel a thing, or I have a bad feeling about this. Classic. So this till the end of the movie is, you know, it is one long scene, basically.
It starts there by the boats and it ends by the boats. So, you know, if the expectations were super high, I think most people are very on board at this point. Casual and serious fans. But... The way Sean Bean kicks it off here in the final, you know, 40, 45 minutes of action and plot twists. I think that's, you know, by the end of the movie, people are like, okay, these guys know what they're doing. Yeah, Borbeer tries to become, you know, almost philosophical about it. This is that, pulling that shot off, it's really hard. Because they, they basically walk right by each other, but somehow, uh, Frodo still looked way shorter than Borbeer. Elijah Wood looked way shorter. That's a great line. If you would but lend me the ring. Yeah, exactly. He's not himself. And I like after he, you know, fall, he misses Frodo and falls, and then immediately snaps out of it and is like, oh my god, what have I done? It just shows you how the ring is manipulating this situation. Yeah, they really sell the size difference here. I don't know how they do that. No, no, buddy. That's exactly what you would be doing if you put on the ring is taking it straight to Sauron. I love that he says curse all the half legs. It's just gratuitous being mean. See, he snaps out of it immediately. It, that's such a good choice as a director slash writer. You know, the, the, the temptation would be to have, you know, take at least a few seconds and he needs to shake himself off and like coming out of a spell. But as soon as the ring is out of range. He comes back to being a normal person. Or relatively normal. Here's the shadow world, which I do not believe we see again. I might have said that last time. But I really don't think we see the shadow world again. You think all the Frodo uh, uh, ring wearing is in the first movie. It still looks great. It has something to do with the geometry of the really thin oval that forms the iris of the eye. Is that the iris? Yeah, they overplay this a little bit, I would say. Where is the ring? Aragorn never talks like that. This is one of those, you know, misdirections that didn't really need to happen. This needed to happen. 
the test of Aragorn definitely needed to happen. But that first little bit where Aragorn acts like he's after Frodo. Yeah, Tolkien wasn't really into little misdirections. Um, he definitely had plot twists, but when I say a misdirection, I mean mostly like in a scene or a handful of scenes, this little running thread uh, of acting, uh, you know, that they have a character act out of character very briefly just to get you thinking, whoa, maybe something's different, and then quickly it comes back to what, you know, you think will happen, which is that, you know, we can trust Aragorn. Oh, uh, this is great, because you think he's looking at the ring. Uh, let me see his orcs. Yep, Aragorn accepts that Frodo has to go alone. Chances are so slim, but it, they cannot risk corrupting someone else. Yeah, the armor, everything's just a little too angular. Uh, there's something really primitive and primal about the um, the orcs. The more, uh, sorry, the uh, Mordor orcs in the second two movies. Well, certainly the third movie. I guess the Urukai we see a lot in the second movie, the Battle of Helm's Deep. Yeah, maybe that's my main complaint. I never even thought of it as a complaint before. Uh, the arrow in the eye is great, or the hand. The way they film all this uphill-downhill stuff is fantastic. It, this is, you know, when you're reading the books, this is how you're imagining it. And usually Tolkien's describing that it's going, you know, during, over different terrains, but you're also just thinking about it. But yeah, I guess if I, I guess it, I would have made the Urukai a little bit more weird goblin orc looking, uh, and less sort of uh, zombie kind of looking or something. Although I do think the zombie aesthetic probably tapped into the love of zombies, which I don't totally get, but I respect. Once again, Mary picks up on it very quickly. Now, you know, hobbits don't seem to be getting corrupted by it, being near it. I, it would seem logical that all four hobbits should go, have gone. Um, although, with just two, there, even with, with Gollum, but when it's just Frodo and Sam, oh god, great moves. And they're all bad, they're all helping each other. This is, I talk this, I talk about this with, uh, superhero movies. That it's great to see these powers, but it's even better when they use their powers together. Like, you know, like Thor hitting Captain America's shield through, like, you know, 12 bad guys. And so I like, in, you know, in uh, medieval fights, they're not just fighting side by side. They are staving off attacks on one another. And this, of course, is Boromir's redemption. And uh, it's a sad redemption because he fails to, to protect... Well, I guess... They don't get killed, but he fails to protect them. See, so these are all fake arrows by Legolas, by the way. Just perfectly timed. That's all fake. It looks so real. The bow's real. 
But yeah, Boromir, they still get captured and Boromir dies. This is a phenomenal uh, extended shot here. I'm not really sure how they did this. Looks like it's on a cable of some sort. But to track them, could, I mean, it's like a drone. Yeah, Boromir, he's doing the right thing. It's best to, it got, they got to rally around the hobbits because they got to protect. If you're going to protect yourself, you might as well protect, you know, your friends who aren't as good fighters. Although they are killing some fuckers here. I hope that was in the original cut. Merry and Pippin just become such good fighters. I love, it's such a cool part of the book, too. It, it, you know, Sam and Frodo are, are, unspeakably brave, uh, you know, in what they do, but, you know, Merry and Pippin are not far behind. Yeah, they extend this battle. I'm always for extending the battle, especially with Lord of the Rings. There's so few bad sections of any battle. Yeah, I like that it, it comes from the, in the direction you don't kind of expect it to come from, based on what the, the camera's doing. Yeah, and Return of the King, you know, Pippin's trying to explain it to to Boromir's dad, Denethor. He says, you know, the, uh, the bravest man may be uh, fell by one, you know, pierced by one arrow, Boromir was pierced by Benny, you know, trying to explain his level of heroism and sacrifice. He does play, I mean... What's great about Sean Bean is when he does get to fight, so he ends up with three arrows in him. That's the third, I believe. Yep. So with each arrow, he starts fighting a little sloppier, a little sloppier, a little sloppier. It's the little things like that. Really appreciate. You know, whenever actors are clearly thinking at, at a very high uh, level, um, with high aptitude, for the role, you have you got to appreciate it, and usually those are good actors. Yeah, I mean the orcs are almost like sentinels or terminators. They, you know, they'll they'll attack you if you're in the way of their true objective. But once you're neutralized, their programming tells them to continue to the objective. So. You know, this is an interesting choice that the chief would stay here to shoot him with the with the bow. Right. In the classic, I'm gonna save Boromir, but he's gonna die. This is great. I don't know how they did that. I mean. You know, when it comes to head-to-head -head fights, Lord of the Rings isn't exactly the Matrix movies, but this stuff is great. The headbutts. They use a lot of wrestling moves. I love this. He licks, does he lick the, yeah, he licks the blood. 
the actors who who play the various orcs and bad guys are so brilliant. What they do with their face. Aragorn's pissed now. Okay, here's the second decapitation cabbing. This is one reason I wish I'd got front. Uh, uh, there it is. Why got why got in order? Vigo's decapitations. I believe there are four. Um, after doing these commentaries, but I'll have to confirm that another time. It's great how pale they make him seem. You can tell he's lost a ton of blood. He's basically gonna die. They don't do this enough in movies. This is, you know, it's almost like rigor mortis is starting to set in, even though he's not quite dead yet. And again, that's the thing. You don't need to show tons of blood to show the horrors of war. Yeah, see, Boromir, for everything Boromir said were his values or the things he was fighting against, his honor and it was the most important thing. He's truly... He, and he feels like he lost his honor. And this is this is key here. Then this is a payoff. You can only get in a trilogy. I mean, you have to wait two years between movies one and three. I swear I will not let the white city fall, nor our people fail. So he's admitting that it's Gondor, admitting that it's their city. Now that he's admitting everything, Boromir is going to open up. And, and one of the best dying, uh, dying lines ever. I talk about Peter Jackson, there's lots of close-ups and lots of far shots, but he really utilizes the widescreen aspect with the far shots to show stuff on the sides, towards the back. It's not everything's right in sight. Yeah. Is he my brother, my captain, my king? I don't know what makes Boromir, uh, what makes Boromir say that at at the end. Um, he's clearly skeptical of Aragorn, but I wonder if this is sort of one of those weird semi-religious experiences where he, you know, in his final moments, Boromir is able to be totally honest with himself, and he looks at Aragorn and says, "Wow, I really screwed up. This guy is he's he's our king. We need him to be our king." And Boromir will never live to bring that message to his father, unfortunately. Oh, and Aragorn's crying. Yeah, I mean, you know, one of the running themes is that Aragorn is supposed to be the king of Gondor, but he didn't grow up in Gondor. His family's been in exile, like, forever. Uh, You know, he grew up with the elves. Um, He's not really Gondorian. He comes from Numenor, which is over the sea. So, you know, I could see why people think he'd be an imposter king. And, and Aragorn always keeps Gondor at arm's length. Uh, in fact, you know, because of his relationships with Theoden and Eowyn, um, he, he gets quite close with the people of Rohan, obviously. And he goes through more, uh, goes, uh, through more with them in some ways. If you really look at the politics of Lord of the Rings, you know, and how the kings became 
became kings. I mean, the people who were kings of Gondor and who are now kings again through Aragorn and Arwen, none of them are actually Gondorians natively. Um, this is an interesting concept, but they're from a, uh, a superior genetic race, basically. Um, they're, you know, they're considered stronger, better men, and so they rule. So, you know, it's, it's tough to tell Tolkien's feelings about politics. The reality is, though, is, you know, in, Tol in Tolkien's mind, it was obvious that the hobbits were clearly the main protagonists. Or I should say, you know, or the main, were the, the bravest. I love this. Uh, totally a Rudy line. Rudy, Rudy. Sean Aston is great. But since the hobbits are living the ideal utopia, as you know, as according to uh, Tolkien's view, then you would think he would think their political system is the best, which is great because they're basically an anarchist system. Not in terms of you know sons of anarchy, but anarchy you know, literally just means you know, no government. Um, so. You know, I'm sure there are councils and stuff, but it feels like a democratic society. There's no king. There's no lord. Everyone's relatively equal. Even Bilbo, who has tons of money, you know, hides it away and tries to act like a normal hobbit. So I think he's, you know, in some ways Tolkien was pulling from the Germanic Scandinavian English legends about this stuff, we know that, you know, historically, the Germanic people have a uh, somewhat unsettling um, fascination with uh, with blood, with the purity of blood. Uh, but that being said, bloodlines have determined royalty since time immemorial, so... If anything, Tolkien's just thought it through more. Um, and, and also, having a good bloodline in Middle-earth doesn't mean that... It doesn't just mean that you're going to be in power. It also means, in most cases, that you are going to be stronger, but also, you know, in theory, you know, more morally um, superior, I guess, or whatever. Essentially, you know, that their leaders have a much higher chance of being good than in our history, if you want to boil it down to that. Right, because you let him go. See, that's the whole thing about fate. You make a decision, and then people say, okay, now what? And you just say, oh, well, it's just fate. Very Morpheus like. <laughs> I 
Oh, Gilmer likes that. Hunting some more. They both do. See? Here, yep, this is where the bond comes together. They love spending time together now. They're great. They're a great duo. It's it's perfect. Legolas barely says anything. Gimli never shuts up. You know, it's like a it's like a great married couple. They they complement each other. So the second movie also ends a similar notion of seeing how far they have left to go. Uh, the difference is they're still quite a ways from Mordor. At this point, by the second one, they're moving in pretty close. The detour to Osgiliath. And Sam with the, you know, necessary end of the movie pump-up speech. And the, the uh, also obligatory uh, bromance moment. Hard to say which ending is more, um, not suspenseful, but which, whether the ending of, of the first movie or the second movie was more effective in, you know, getting you excited for the for the next. I would say this one, just because um, it, it is such a surprise ending, if you aren't familiar with the story of the death of Boromir, the fact that everyone gets split up, and that, and that Frodo and Sam would, you know... After a very short time with the Fellowship, just leave them by themselves, these two hobbits. And the final battle was great. I think also just the fact that, you know, this so... I don't know if it exceeded financial um, expectations. It did do very well. But I think it exceeded expectations of both fans and non-fans. And, you know... If I was if I was excited but very very nervous and circumspect going into this movie, I was just pumped for the two towers, um, and uh, you know from that point on, I mean it's like I said, I really have to reach to find criticisms. There's things I would do slightly differently. There's a few things I would add, take out, of course. Cast wise, I wouldn't change anyone. I mean, I'm looking at the names here. It's like. Uh, you know, who do you take out of this lineup? Uh, yeah, I'll trade you Kate Blanchett for, you know, um, well, I really wouldn't trade Kate Blanchett. I guess that's the whole point. I'll trade you, um, <laughs> I'll trade you Orlando Bloom for Channing Tatum. All right, people, hope you enjoyed that. Have a good night. Bizzle out.